Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Safety Insurance, offering a variety of home insurance products to cover your home's increased value. You can ask an independent agent about safety insurance. Safety Insurance will help you manage life's storms. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, after a sprawling press conference where he did not announce his resignation, advocacy groups are saying Trump's labor secretary, Alex Acosta, must go. They even projected words on the Department of Labor building that say Acosta enabled sex trafficking. Now with another woman coming forward who says she was raped by Jeffrey Epstein at age 15, we asked Chuck Todd if Acosta's shelf life is now on life support. From there, we open the lines and ask you about the politician's flip-flop. Is it fatal to a campaign or essential to political survival? The latest example comes from Amy McGrath. In the span of a few hours, the Democrat challenging Mitch McConnell in the Kentucky Senate race did a 180 on Brett Kavanaugh. First, she said she would have voted to confirm him until she decided that she wouldn't. Then at noon, Andrew Cabral is here for another edition of Law and Order. Will Trump follow through with immigration raids or not? All that is next on Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady, I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim. Another gorgeous day, Marjorie. Another gorgeous day. Another hot, hot one, Jim. It's Jim, beautiful. hot one, hot one. Join us online. Go over the latest political headlines. It's Chuck Todd. Chuck is the moderator of Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 10.30 on NBC Boston. That's Channel 10 on most providers. He's also the host of Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC and the political director of NBC News. Hello, Chuck Todd. Well, hi there, guys. I feel like it's been a while. It has been a I while. Know. You were fairly busy with something else, yeah. actually. So we're <laughs> willing to excuse you. Big nights. Say, it feels like it feels like it happened a year ago or a day ago. Depends on the minute. <laughs> we're going to get back to it. I have a, a couple of things I want to raise with you about it. Yeah, in, a minute. in, in just a minute. Because before that, I do want to talk about something uh, from a day ago. Um, I saw on your uh, MPG Daily, Chuck Todd, this interview with Jennifer Araz, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, she was interviewed by Savannah Guthrie, and she claims that mm-hmm. she was raped as a teenager when she was 14 years old by Jeffrey Epstein. It was uh, a very upsetting uh, interview. But I wonder, is this going to start, is this the first of many, or, or what do you think? Is this going to keep... That's what I think. I mean, I'll just be honest. I, 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 I just, I, I'm not going to sit here and say I know anything. I just think this feels, this feels like, look, he... He and and the woman who procured these girls, they preyed on socially vulnerable girls, right, who right. were in either tough homes, tough situations, because they thought, well, they're not going to go to cops. They're not going to go to the authorities. I think as you see, you know, this, this woman now in her 30s was so poised on, on one hand and on the other hand so, um, so moving. I, I think it's it's I, I can't imagine it not giving strength to others to do this. So and I think that that if you're looking at the Acosta fallout, for instance, that to me, that's the difference between him surviving this or not. It's just how many more victims come out. I mean, I think this is I think this is remember what happened during gymnastics, Michigan State. Every Larry time Nassar, you, yeah. they thought, yeah, Larry Nassar, every time they thought they were, quote, containing that story. Victims wouldn't allow it to be contained, yeah. right? I, I just have this feeling that we're in a different place with Epstein, and it's a very I, I envision what we saw with Michigan State, and that this is this is 
going to just get bigger, not smaller. You know, when you mentioned Acosta, I couldn't uh, help but think as I'm watching the 2.30 press conference yesterday that it reminded me of then-nominee Kavanaugh performing for one person, the boss, and that's mm-hmm. the sense I got at the boss being, obviously, the President of the United States. What's your over-under on how long Acosta lasts? Is it a function of how many girls, now women, think, come forward, or what? I think it's a function of that, because that's a function of how long the story is above the fold. Right. You know, this president is one of those that just doesn't like any bad press that accumulates to him if he's not involved with it. Right. And so he will look for the quickest way to 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 do that. So I I think I think Acosta is is basically lives or dies, depending on how how long this story is, is perpetuated. Well, he's going to last longer than the strip club convention at uh, Doral. So, I mean, that's, I guess, something. You know, Chuck, I, I, Marjorie and you I... Know, did... that's one of those things. Don't you, don't you, there's party of the things. You know, if nobody reports on it before it happens and you report on it after it happens, then they couldn't have gotten away with canceling it. Then yeah. they're stuck with it, right? I, you know? I nearly you fell do. off the I chair. I mean, does anybody believe they cancel this without the press coverage? <laughs> no chance, right? No, I, and, and for people that didn't see the story, they were going to be caddy girls driving. They caddy were going to be carrying girls, the yeah. golf carts. Apparently, they were driving they the golf carts in these very sexy uh, halter tops, as one of them described, in a little t- tiny pink thing, a little skirt, or a little. But no short. nudity till later. No nudity till later. That's right. In the midst of all this, oh, yeah. No, not at the club. It back. I at... No, I didn't know that they were allowing it at all. No. So in any case, we, we started talking Only about Miami. the debate from a couple. You know, Marjorie and I did an interview yesterday with the new superintendent of the Boston Public Schools, and I thought it was really interesting. We were glad to meet her first time we'd met her. And we had an interesting discussion about testing into the exam schools in Boston, which I thought was important. Mm-hmm. But then we wake up this morning. It's a lead story in the Boston Globe, and I'm embarrassed to say I didn't realize at the time it was a big a deal. And you'll understand the connection in a second. You were sitting on the stage when Kamala Harris had her moment mm-hmm. with Joe Biden. When you were sitting mm-hmm. there watching that back and forth, did you realize how immense that moment was going to be, at least so far in this presidential campaign? Uh, yes. I mean, put it this way. Um, I could I could hear a pin drop in the ballroom. Mm-hmm. It was... It was a moment, and when she said that, and she said it to us, she said it to you know, the way Rachel and I were just basically alternating, um, going back and forth, and I think Rachel was uh, had the steering wheel at that time, and she basically said, oh, you're going to wait until, you know, when she, we, we were about to get into this topic, okay, for better, you know, what, we were about to get in this topic, and that was essentially what Rachel was trying to say to her. Like, well, if you want to hang on a second and we, we can, mm-hmm. we'll tee this up, we'll reorganize, you know, and don't worry, same topic, you know. Um, and then she did what she did. There's not, you know, you clam up, you sit back, and you don't get in the way. So I did, we did know it was an important moment. How big, of course, um, you find out later. Uh, but it, it, trust me, there was this silence that fell in the hall, too, that gave it sort of that extra oomph (laughs) where you know i could feel a little bit in my stomach like oh boy okay um and there was a little bit of nervousness on my own part okay 
don't get in the way, yeah, keep your exactly. mouth shut, don't get in the way, don't get in the way, you know, which is um, to me the number one rule of a moderator. You know, what surprised me so much watching that, uh, uh, Chuck Todd, and this is not an original thought, but that we saw Biden uh, uh, debate Paul Ryan. I thought he did a terrific job then. We saw before that mm-hmm. he debated Sarah Palin. I remember when he was running for president previously. He was a good ago, debater. Marjorie. Yeah, well, exactly. Mm-hmm. Is this just that he's, I mean, I was surprised at his slow uptake. And is it maybe because he is in his late 70s or out of practice or taking things for granted? Here's or? the thing. Here's the thing. Whatever the excuse is, there's no excuse for the next debate. That's the point. Like all of these excuses are potential ones that he wasn't ready for it, that he wasn't prepared. I have no doubt, by the way, because I've heard some anecdotes about this with his campaign right now, that he every once in a while says, I've been doing this for 50 years. I know. I know. Or I can do it. I got this. And because he's been around, his own staffers say, "Okay," and they back off. So there is a sense of, I think, this was a wake-up call for him that, you know what, uh, you do need to to practice, and you do need to do your homework. It doesn't matter how many times you've taken this test. You do need to do this. I think we're going to find out at this next debate. I think that the thing I learned from night one to night two in our debate was that these candidates are copycatters. They saw what worked on night one mm-hmm. in, as far as to see how – how we were going to be as, as, as policers of, of the time and of who could speak and whenever. And so they learn, right, the night two, well, what are they going to learn from that night two? They're going to learn, hey, beating up on Biden is good for business, right? It's good for your, good for your candidacy. So I think they're all going to pile on Biden. So we're going to find out if he's ready for it this time. And if he is, then I think it erases these concerns that you have. Then, uh, is he, you know, a little old? Is he, you know, a little on the uptake? Blah, 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 blah. We're going to find out quickly. I think this is a, and if he doesn't perform July, I think it is a fair question to ask whether he's up to it. Talking to Chuck Todd from Meet the Press and Meet the Press Daily. So I want to know what you make of this uh, uh, dispute or whatever you want to call it between House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the so-called mm-hmm. squad of four, which includes one of our local congresswomen, Ayanna yeah. Presley. As people may know, uh, uh, Kellyanne Conway goes on uh, Fox and Friends and talks about this is a meow mashup, in other words, a cat fight. And Ayanna Presley comes back uh, tough and says, oh, hi, distraction baby, she tweets in response to Kellyanne Conway. Remember that time your boss tore babies from their mother's arms and threw them in cages? And then she says, yeah, take a seat to Conway and keep my name out of your lying mouth. That was pretty tough stuff. And uh, uh, Cortez (laughs) is, is basically saying that she has no relationship with Nancy Pelosi anymore at all. Look, it's, um, I think this is a little bit of a test of wills. I think this is the sort of new school, old school, right? I mean, you know, we have, we have the, the squad here with AOC leading the charge has, has a lot of, um, as a, my friends at Politico put it today, soft power, right? She's got, they've got soft power. She can, she can make noise. She can get headlines. She can't pass legislation, but she can get headlines. And that was the point Nancy Pelosi was making. Hey, guess what? Until you have the votes, you don't have power. And they're just four votes. Um, I think this is a test of wills for, for a time, but they're going to have to resolve this. But, but I, I will say this. They're only four. Pelosi has a point. I think if they want to put more pressure on Pelosi, they've got to learn to build a bigger coalition than just the squad of four. If you have a, I mean, why did the Freedom Caucus have so much influence over Ryan and Boehner? They were more than four. 
So yeah. I do think they need to build a bigger coalition if they want to have this influence, which in a weird way is what Pelosi was telling them to do, even though she didn't say it that directly. Because when she said in Maureen Dowd's piece, it's their four votes. And how many votes did they get? Four. Her point was, they don't have any influence. Why do you keep asking me about them? Well, guess what? Go get some influence internally. You got to play both an inside-outside game. And I do think the squad, this new, these new members, have a great outside game. They got to learn to play a little bit inside. You know, I want to ask you about one more thing that I don't know if it'll be the first of many or not. There was also this really, really heart-wrenching testimony by a Guatemalan asylum seeker yesterday, uh, Mm -hmm. Yasmin Juarez, who lost her baby girl. Her her daughter died after being released from detention, and she was before Congress. Uh, AOC was asking her a lot of questions, too, about whether the conditions there were safe and sanitary, to which she said no. Um, but the, and she's an asylum seeker, which is legit. Uh, is it? Are we going to see a parade of of people that were alleging they were mistreated or their children were mistreated? Is this the first of many too? Boy, I hope not. But I'm 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 fearful that you know just the, the sheer numbers that we're looking at. Um, you know, and, and let's let's play the percentages here. Ninety eight percent of border patrol agents could be acting on the up and up, but if just two percent aren't. And you have all these, you know, so I, I, you know, I, I fear that there, there could be, you know, you know, even if it is a small group of bad apples, it doesn't matter that they could have an outsized, an outsized um, horrific impact on some people. So that, I hope that isn't the case, but I I fear the sheer volume, the sheer numbers that we're looking at, uh, the understaffing, the pressure, whatever you want to call it, the, the entire and the politicization of it. I think is is a is a terrible uh, a soup that that sort of that that sort of leads to this. So I, I, I yeah, I, I the only good news that came out of yesterday, I thought, was you finally have Republicans coming out and saying the conditions are horrid and that it has to change. Now they're still trying to point the finger and say, well, Democrats won't change the law, so therefore we won't change these conditions. I don't understand why. You have to hold these migrant facilities and these people in them hostage to change asylum laws. Just treat everybody humanely and sanitary first, and then let's have the political debate. Like, let's get people's lives settled. Let's get people's health. You know, let's I I don't that I don't quite get. So, I mean, I guess, like I said, the good news is we're a step closer. When Matt Gates is out there denouncing the conditions in Yuma, Arizona, okay, at one of these facilities, that's a step in the everybody's at least speaking to the same set of facts place. Okay, well, now let's solve that problem first before we have the political debate. It does seem as if that the right wants to have a political debate first before solving the problem. You know, Chuck, last thing for me, one of my pet peeves in politics I wanted to broach with you, it relates to Marjorie's favorite public official, Mitch McConnell. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I, mm-hmm. I'm reading this thing when I woke up this morning about uh, the celebration that this McGrath – uh, candidate is announced that she's running against uh, Mitch McConnell. She raised two and a half million or something on day one, which yeah. is more a lot of the candidates. Yeah. Are present. Did you hear about her one day? Did you hear about her day two faux pas? Well, that's what I want to broach with you. This literally, my, my, yeah. it causes me to, for those who haven't paid attention to this, this is obviously in Kentucky. 
uh, when asked, uh, uh, I think on day one, you'll tell me how much time lag there was, would she have voted for Kavanaugh had she been uh, uh, been in the Senate? The answer was yes. And then, uh, you, I guess it was the next day, I thought it was hours later, whenever it was, she says, well, after having further reviewed the record, as if, well, was she asleep during the hearings? I would vote no. You know, it, it, it harkened back, and maybe this is unfair, to Joe Biden. I was for the... Uh, the uh, John uh, Kerry, you mean? The, no, no, no. Well, that too... I was going to say I was for the Hyde Amendment before I was against the Hyde Amendment. And you're right. I was before the Iraq. And, you know, all of a sudden uh, times have changed. Does this not drive you out of your mind when a candidate is so disingenuous that you feel like your head could pop off? I mean, say what you think. No. Well, well, and to me, this is this is the type of blunder for Amy McGrath that could define her candidacy and she never gets out of the way. Of all issues, not to, of all questions not to be prepared for, you weren't prepared for the Brett Kavanaugh question. That's about so, and, and you didn't know what your answer was going to be. You just raised two and a half million dollars nationally, and you thought, "Oh, I got to beat for Kavanaugh because that's a way to to, to that." that wait, wait, the whole point of running against Mitch McConnell was that's the Supreme point. Court, right? I, I just like I don't how on. So to me, it's a lack of preparation. Like you're not prepared for this question. You haven't thought this through. It, it, you can. She changed her mind in four hours, by the way. It was after, four hours. Four okay. hours. Okay, not a full day. <laughs> so it's not like you were undecided about the USMCA. Well, I was for NAFTA, then I've read into it a little bit, and I've decided this is not like a trade deal that maybe you didn't fully read in on before you announced your candidacy. Kavanaugh was a was was probably, you know, is part of America's zeitgeist for the last year, right? It is a, you just say the word and it, it, it's, it means different things to different people. That's how, it, so yes, it, it doesn't just drive you. It, it just, it's, it's actions like this that give politics a bad name. Exactly. I believe in politics. I believe in the, I believe in the art of the possible. This is why I'm a, I'm a stubborn mule when it comes to bipartisanship. Because ultimately, nothing gets done in this country until you create a coalition that's beyond your own your own political party. So I am a stubborn mule on that stuff. But my God, when you go in there being that ham-handed and that transactional, this is why we have Donald Trump. That's always when I when people when you make when you act like this when politicians act like this. This is why the public says, "Ah, forget it. I'll just take Donald Trump. He's authentically inauthentic." <laughs> Well, you, made you know, my day, you know Chuck. something, Chuck. Just real quick before you go, it's not just the, the inauthenticness. It's, I mean, I've been a reporter forever, and I have often been stunned in my life. Politicians are making rules about now about climate change, or talking about climate change, or for years about abortion, right. or things that are really impacting people's lives. And you ask them about it. It's been my experience. We just had a Senate candidate here in Massachusetts. You ask them a question, they don't know what they're talking about. It's it's kind of a stunning thing. I don't think it's that unusual, whether they're inauthentic or they just don't know. You know? No, and it's what – you know what happens is it's why we as reporters sometimes get – I think we get so jaded because we sit here and, wait a minute, why do I know more about this than you Exactly. Do? You know, I always say, like, I shouldn't know more about this Exactly. I know. It always bothers me. It's like, can you imagine a student knowing more than the teacher, right? You just – and at the end of the day, an elected official, you would hope, knows more, but that isn't the way it works. We all now know that the press usually knows more of this stuff than, 
than the actual electeds, and certainly staff knows more than than any of them. But it does it does sort of my God, it, it figurehead politics is a bad thing, and what it, what it does is it makes these people come across as nothing more than puppets and figureheads. Well, very well said. Very well said. Chuck Chuck Todd, thank you very much. All right, guys. See ya. See ya. Chuck Todd joins us every week. He's the moderator of Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 1030 on NBC Boston, Channel 10 on most providers. He's also the host of Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC and the political director for NBC News. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, we were talking to Chuck Todd about Amy McGrath. She is the uh, Democratic challenger to Mitch McConnell in Kentucky's Senate race and is now in the same league as, I guess you could say, George H.W. Bush, John Kerry, Joe Biden, politicians who have famously flip-flopped, even though she did it in record speed. In a span of just a couple of hours, as we talked about, McGrath did a 180 on Brett Kavanaugh. First, she said she would have voted to confirm him to the Supreme Court. I shouldn't laugh. But after backlash from a whole variety of places, with some saying they would not even donate to her campaign, she tweeted, quote, upon further reflection and further understanding of his record, I would have voted no. We're taking your calls and asking you, is a flip-flop like this fatal? Would you prefer a candidate who is consistent, even if it means that he or she has gotten something wrong from your perspective? Uh, is wriggling and waffling okay if it means political survival? Does it all come down to how a politician, politician does it and what the issue was? For example, was Obama's, quote, evolution on same-sex marriage more artful than, say, John Kerry being for funding for the Iraq war before he was against it? 877-301-897. This McGrath thing, and you may not have heard of it, is so insanely egregious. You know, it's sort of like, uh, well, I really hadn't read up on Brett Kavanaugh, but after I said I'd vote for him, four hours later I realized I'd vote against him. And Chuck made a much more important point than I did, which is arguably the reason she raised $2.5 million from across the country is because Mitch McConnell's greatest sin in the minds of Democrats is stopping Merrick Garland and advancing at any cost uh, Brett Kavanaugh and uh, uh, Gorsuch. I mean, it's just – it's. It is unbelievable to me. So I guess I will answer my own question. Mm-hmm. As much as I believe Brett Kavanaugh should not have been confirmed, I believe Christine Blasey Ford, and he shouldn't have been, I would prefer she say, yes, I would vote for him, and makes the case, which is obviously what she believed, than doing a flip-flop after her staff obviously told her, you're about to destroy your whole campaign. Okay. 877 Well, I'm giving her another chance. Well, oh, because you can't stand Mitch McConnell? Yeah, because she was the first woman to fly one of those F-18 uh, fighter pilots. I mean, she was a Marine for all the 20 years. I she mean, may have been the first. Was she the first, possibly? Whatever yes. it was, she was early on. First female, I just looked yeah. up to be sure, first female Marine Corps pilot to fly the F-A-18 in a combat mission. 20 years in the Marines. And you think Bombing she, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. You think a woman who does not know what her position is on Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation it deserves a seat in the United States. Senate. I think it's. I think it's very bad. I think it's early days. I think she can recover from this, and I do think. And we disagree about this. I think a lot of politicians, as I just said to Chuck Todd, uh-huh. tragically have no idea what they're talking about. So a she lot didn't of know. She issues. didn't know what Brett Kavanaugh stood for and didn't stand for until she did a review for those four hours. Uh, well, this is bad because it, because he tried to rape someone in my book, and who is who credibly testified about it, uh, Christine Blasey Ford. To 
Congress. So that's that was pretty bad. But uh, let's pick another one. Let's pick another one. For Mm -hmm. example, Joe Biden uh, has supported the Hyde Amendment for decades. That's fine. I mean, not not fine, but he's been consistent. He supported the Hyde Amendment when asked several weeks ago, uh, and then he had an epiphany apparently. And well, actually, we have it. Here's what he said when he reversed his position on the Hyde Amendment. This is early June at an event, I believe, it was in Atlanta. Here it is. I can't justify leaving millions of women without access to the care they need and the ability to to exercise their constitutionally protected right. If I believe health care is a right as I do, I can no longer support an amendment that makes that right dependent on someone's zip code. So, So Joe Biden did not know until he had the epiphany that if you can't get federal funding, a poor woman may not be able to access an abortion. He, that was a revelation to him that came to him because he didn't know. Is he in that same category? Well, as I said to you before, it's, it's very possible that what Joe Biden – that Joe Biden did not give this a whole hell of a lot of thought because obviously we saw he didn't give his supporting segregationists a whole hell of a lot of thought or his stance on busing a whole hell of a lot of thought when he was mm-hmm. in the debate the other night. That he may have thought, like lots of people, that, okay – uh, you can be uh, pro-choice, but we're not going to make taxpayers fund abortion because that's against their fundamental uh, uh, values, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I would bet that Joe Biden, like millions of Americans, have no idea how much an abortion costs. When they think that women can't get abortion, they think it's because the clinic's closed, because the clinic right, is like too far away. Laws, right. They don't think it's because they can't afford okay, it. Okay, so let me just and be I bet clear a lot on of this. people don't know, for example, I don't want to give you a quiz here, no, go ahead. but how much do they get cost for an abortion pill? I have no idea. Well, exactly. And how much did it cost for abortion? Let me tell you what I do know. Let me tell you what I do know. A lot of people don't know that. Let me tell you what I do know. I did not serve 40 years in the United States Senate. Right. I was not vice president for eight years. Mm -hmm. Even despite both those failings, Mm -hmm. I knew that if there wasn't government funding, some women would be too poor to be able to afford an abortion, whatever it cost. Joe Biden was vice president right. for eight years. And by the way, people may – you may say, well, listen, even if it was a phony conversion, it's better than nothing. And I also believe there are real conversions in politics that grownups learn things and they do evolve. Well, I don't think – by the way, Barack Obama didn't evolve on a same-sex marriage. He just, he just didn't think it was the right time to, to announce it. And Joe Biden – talk about ironies. Remember Biden, the New York Times story, spoke at some fundraiser in California and said, oh, we support gay marriage or whatever he did. And then he sort of outed yeah, his boss. Yeah, like a whoops. And, uh, <laughs> so, but real conversions, if you listen to people, and I'm 100% fine with. But the examples we're talking about, like this McGrath thing, is so funny and so, disinge- so phony and so disingenuous that it drives me nuts. Let me give you one more example, mm-hmm. and we'll take because I've said this to you before. This is a long time ago, but it, it's relevant. In 1990, the most popular politician in Massachusetts was Ray Flynn. He was the mayor of Boston at the time. And that's despite the fact that he was dead wrong, according to the population, on the two most important issues of the day. He was pro-tax in an anti-tax state. Correct. He was pro-life in a pro-choice state. And you know why he was so popular? Because people, in my opinion, believe that even if I disagree with Ray Flynn, it's heartfelt and real and not politically mm-hmm. concocted by some high-priced consultant. And there was another reason. People like genuine actors. They do, and there was another reason, and that was because if you were pro-choice, you knew that Ray Flynn's pro-life stand was meaningless in terms of what it would mean for ability to, for women to get an abortion. He had no power in that Well, regard. except in 1990, if you recall, there were some rumors he was running for governor, too. He didn't end up doing that. But you may be right about that. All I'm saying is I, I like to think that people are willing to forgive 
a wrong position on an issue if they believe that the person is smart and they've thought it through and it's a heartfelt position as opposed to these phony political conversions like Amy McGrath uh, experienced. It's just it's 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 un- and you know what's even worse? The what? American public has such a short attention span that as long as you flip to the quote right position, whatever it is for you, most people are willing to ignore how people got there. And, you know, it's, it drives me nuts. 877-301-897. Let's start in Foxborough with Beth. Beth, you're on Boston Public Radio. Thank you so much for calling. Hi. 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 Um, I, this is Beth from Southborough. I wasn't sure for a second. Oh, sorry. Our apologies. <laughs> Hello, Beth from Southborough. Hi. Um, I love it when you two d- disagree. <laughs> so um, That's right. Jim's an anyway, ignorant slut today. <laughs> So I wanted to say that I um, am mostly with Jim on this. I do think, you know, it drives me crazy when the explanation doesn't hold water, when it doesn't sound sincere. I can absolutely um, buy into someone changing their position because they learned more information or the situation changed, but they have to credibly explain that. And when it's clearly because of political reasons, you know, honestly, I could sometimes forgive that if they actually were honest about that, too. Um, You know, for instance, with Biden, if on the Hyde Amendment, if he had said something more along the lines of the outcry against his position made him reevaluate and he listened to what they had to say and then claimed that their arguments convinced him, at least that would have sounded more sincere than the sudden um, coming around on it that was just coincidental. Can I, you know, Beth, you know what you just reminded me of? uh, Well, one, if the evolution is real, you and I are on the same page, we agree, or if the conversion is real. But two, if they're honest about the flip-flop. And I'll give you an example. Seth Moulton was on with us a year and a half. Well, he's been on a number of times. Was on with us a year and a half ago. I have no recollection what the issue was. But it was an issue, uh, and one of the things we were talking about is a flip-flop he did, a 180 on something. And it was clear to any observer that he didn't have a, a midnight epiphany. He got <laughs> trashed at home over the issue. And so I think one of us, Marjorie or I, said to him, uh, uh, Congressman, uh, did you change your position on this because of X or because... Your constituents went crazy, and you realize you're going to get croaked. And to his credit, he said, the latter. I really got savaged on this thing when I went home. And again, I can't remember what it was. And even though that was, you know, this kind of convert, I admired the fact that he was willing to say, boy, did I make a huge mistake. And if McGrath had said the same thing, I'd feel differently. But these phony midnight conversions are just... B.S. Beth, thanks for the call. We appreciate it. 877-301-8970. I'm reading again. I'm reading the article uh, from some Kentucky newspaper. But upon further reflection and further (laughs) understanding of his record, meaning Brett Kavanaugh, I would have voted no. I mean, did you sleep through the hearings? Did you not? uh, So what are you saying? You watch the hearings and your view is I would have voted for him. But after four hours of further reflection... I would have voted against Well, I think her excuse was the the, the many years that had passed between his 
high school uh, uh, attempted rape in his many years. Yeah, but that was that many years plus four hours that caused her to I change. Know. I mean, I know. He, you know, it's it's a little hard. But there. again, I I just think a lot. Of, I mean, mass incarceration is another one. You see a lot of politicians. Uh, we, we see the Amy uh, the uh, Rachel Rollins reaction. She's uh, on with me tonight, by the way. She's on with you tonight, and uh, to her and saying next we're not going to be uh, uh, putting people in jail from nonviolent offenses. I, I'm aware of the Globe highlighted some stories where people that were convicted or accused of violent offenses weren't uh, weren't uh, prosecuted by her either, which is a problem. I'm sure we'll get to that. You will and I will. But it's, it's like a lot of people don't realize until they, they're shocked to find out that the, the, the racism and the criminal justice system, they're just shocked. And part of the reason they're shocked is because people have busy lives and they don't have time to, you know, read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander or read, you know, all these other uh, So Joe Biden, again, Joe Biden didn't know because he's really busy that poor women couldn't afford an abortion without federal help. I, I'm telling you, I think that a lot of people don't realize that. I didn't say a lot of people. I said a former I think vice a lot president of and a 40-year senator did not know I think he, that poor he was, women he's opposed, needed he's help. He's personally opposed to abortion. He talks about his Catholicism all the time. And he he thought, it. okay, I'm going to be pro-choice, but I don't want people to have to use their tax dollars for this and didn't think it through. What the consequences were. Diane in Arlington, you're on Boston Public Radio. Thanks for calling. Hi. Hi, folks. Um, hey. So I think uh, regarding the Amy McGrath thing, I think this flip-flop has caused her to actually go down a few notches or a few rungs in a lot of people's minds, because as you guys are saying, she sounds inconsistent or disingenuous. However, I think the important thing in, with, in the people's minds is to be pragmatic. Who do we have? Oh, I agree. Counter I... Mitch McConnell. It's, right now, it's her, and she has a lot of good appeal. So we need to just go with her. You I know, didn't, by the way, but Diane, if I miss, if if I it wasn't clear, I wasn't suggesting it was going to cause people who can't stand Mitch McConnell in Kentucky to abandon Amy McGrath. I was just saying okay. it really. I I hate it, and uh, uh, and obviously, if you if the agenda, I mean, Marjorie, you know, can't go through a day without trashing Mitch McConnell. I'm sure she wouldn't abandon Amy McGrath if she was a Kentucky voter. Uh, and so right. you're right too, but I, I'm just saying it's it's troubling, and well, you know, I wish the reason I get so upset about Mitch McConnell is that there are rules of the road, and and that the, the, the United States has been based on, and 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 you're you're supposed to abide by, and it's just this constant. What do you trashing. mean, with the Garland thing, or the yes. decision on the night of the inauguration of Barack well, Obama that they were going to fight well, every single thing he did? that was one. He did say that. He went down to Russia with a bunch of Republicans said, we're going to undermine him at every turn. Our whole, everything he does, we're going to try to trash. But it's, 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 it's that he did this terrible thing where he wouldn't even allow uh, this, these hearings on uh, the Supreme, Merrick Garland Supreme Court justice. And then, just a couple of weeks ago, when he asked what happens if somebody else drops out, while uh, we're 11 months from the election or whatever, we're more than that now, I guess, 15 months from the election, whatever we are. Whatever we are there was another vacancy. He just said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're just going to ram him right through, ram him right through. So he's just so blatantly admitting I'm his not design. You. So I guess that's one of the things that gets me so upset about Mitch McConnell. You have to sort of at least play by the rules sometimes because – Things democracy is not that sturdy. If no one, especially the guy that's leading the Senate, is going to just say the hell with all the rules, let's just throw them out the window. Diane, thanks for the call. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. You know the other thing I think a lot of people were shocked about back no. in Massachusetts. I talked about this before we went on the air. Drunk driving. I think people had no idea that that uh, that people that were convicted of vehicular homicide were getting like basically. Sl- 
slaps on the wrist. We're not doing any jail time that they had any idea of how uh, badly the courts were treating drunk driving. Remember we had um, all those stories uh, about people just walking out of court after running mm-hmm. people over and killing them when they were drunk. Well, it came to light when Ron Bersani, a citizen activist whose granddaughter Melanie Powell yeah. was killed by a drunk driver, essentially educated the public and changed the law. Right, but I think a lot of the politicians that were voting on those things in Massachusetts didn't, didn't know, know it either. Well, I agree. I, I just I, I, I hear your point. I, let me just say again. I think that's a little different. A layperson or even a politician in a state legislature from a vice president of the United States for eight years, not realizing until his staff told him, according to you, that uh, poor women might not be able to afford an abortion without federal funding. But in any case, Tim and Worcester, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Hi, Tim. Hi. How you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Great. Always a pleasure to be on your show. Thanks. Um, I really feel that it's more important for liberals versus uh, uh, conservatives to uh, not let people get away with flip, flip, flipping and flopping and and uh, and also lying, uh, but the problem is, Trump has snowplowed this idea of of being immoral, lying, flipping and flopping. Uh, just like you know, we never let um, Mitt Romney get away with it, but now it's like commonplace. It's almost like the only people that really care about it are people like. Uh, me uh, being a liberal, but Republicans don't really care about that. It's not that important to them. So well, I don't, I don't know, know if that's fair. You know, I but, think one of the reasons why Mitt Romney had some problems, by the way, is because people weren't really in, in his own but party. But with Trump, you, one of the most incredible things of all was he gave his big environmental speech this week, yeah. talking about how wonderful things he's done for the environment when he's uh, when he's pulled back all the regulations on clean air, or most of them on clean air and clean water, and would pull them all back if he could. And make how about, quote, worse. we will fight to protect people with pre-existing conditions? I know. Always, he said. So, you know, but but I'm with you, Tim, in the sense that it seems like, you know, the old line that the Democrats are all supposed to behave themselves and be nice when the Republicans are in there, you know, uh, uh, hammering everybody over the head. You know what I mean? It's like, why why do the Democrats always have to behave themselves? You're looking at me? Yeah. Well, I... Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think people should be honest is the bottom line. Eight seven, uh, Tim, thanks for the call. 877-301-897. I really, I love, I like honesty. And and by the way, one of the reasons why Trump is president yeah. is because as crass and brutal and racist and whatever as his, quote, honesty can occasionally be, a lot of people like that kind of stuff. Wait a minute. Where is his honesty? I think his racism is right in front oh, of his face. Okay. I'm just as oh, one example. Okay. People like that kind of thing that he calls things out. A lot of things that people think, much of which I wish they wouldn't think. When he says it, people say, I was thinking that. I didn't have the courage to say, I'm not defending okay. it. I'm just saying it's part of his appeal. But we should point out that, of course, right now he's in trouble uh, because with, on the census because he had his lawyers from the Justice Department say they had to have the question on the census because they were going to help minorities in, in the Voting Rights Act. And, of course, we now know What's that, your point? That well, he's the, not – he's <laughs> inauthentic? The point is if they totally lied about it, they got 
caught by the Supreme Court, and now they're trying to figure out a way to reconstruct the lie. All I'm saying, I'm not. I didn't say he told the truth. I'm just saying every non-PC bone in his body okay. gets him another supporter because a lot of America thinks that politicians are far too politically correct, and that's part of his appeal. We're talking about the flip-flop, asking if it dooms a campaign or not. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about the art of uh, flip-flop. I guess that's the right word. 877-301-8970. Do you resent politicians who do it when it appears, let's put it this way, not to be heartfelt? Do you really believe, for example, that Joe Biden changed his mind on the Hyde Amendment, on the merits, or because his staff said this is a big problem for you, Mr. Vice President? Uh, uh, 877-301-8970. I think the consensus, Marjorie, the only thing you and I agree upon is a heartfelt conversion. Obviously, you have to decide what's heartfelt and what's not. Uh, particularly if people admit that their earlier position was not the good one, is something you celebrate. I like open-mindedness is a good thing, but politically motivated four-hour-later conversions or next-day conversions because your staff tells you your candidacy has gone right in the toilet if you don't do a quick flip-flop is just – I hate it. I really hate it. Okay. uh, A a lot of the emails are are with you, Jim, but some of them are not. Uh, This is a longer one from Sean, but I'm going to read the last part. He said – uh, politicians don't know what it's like living a normal life of an average citizen. How do you expect Joe Biden to know a poor woman can't afford an abortion? Only certain GOP politicians know that from experience with their mistresses. <laughs> who was the guy from? Was it a Pennsylvania congressman? I don't know. Who was, he was the a big, big pro-life guy? Pro-life guy, and pro-life then the, guy. What, the emails came out or something that he had urged his yeah, uh, that his, 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 his mistress, mistress gets to have pregnant an abortion. and he wants her to have an abortion. I love that. And you know the that famous the famous one was John McCain. This was years ago. Now he big pro-life guy. He, and and again, I think this is how this is a perfect example of how people don't think this through. What happens in this if case, your daughter you. comes home and she's pregnant? He was asked this when we running for president. Yes. And he said, well, something like we'd, we'd sit down, sit down and have we'd a have a family meeting and we decide what to do. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, and it the was, next day, by the way, he had to do a quick reverse. That's right. And said, no, we'd say have the baby, et cetera, because he right. realized he it was a pro-choice. for unwed <laughs> he, he didn't say that. He did, but he essentially he had <laughs> taken a pro-choice position months. when yeah. he was being honest and I guess my point is I think people adopt the position they think is the right one in their party, and they often don't think of the consequences. And that's what I think. They just don't think things all the way through. And the people that are thinking things sorry, all the way through. that's not defensible. That may be true. It's not acceptable. And by the way, I'm not saying you don't forgive people who don't know. Mm-hmm. as Obviously, we all make mistakes. We all are underinformed in some areas. Right. And we all do evolve. And, and as we said before, gay marriage is the classic case where a lot of politicians I agree that. were down I agree. with gay rights and you can't get fired and you can't uh, get thrown out of your apartment. But oh, I don't know about is marriage. supporting Brett Kavanaugh at noon and opposing him at four o'clock fall into that category? I'm not going to defend her. She made a big mistake. Okay, but I'm not going to disqualify her because she say... is running against Mitch McConnell. <laughs> I got that, and I think if I don't have to look at that guy for the rest of my life, I will be one happy person. Kim from Cambridge. What do you think, Kim? Hello, Kim. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I just wanted to say I actually ran into Mitch McConnell 
um, the day or one or two days after uh, Justice Scalia died. Mm-hmm. You're kidding. And I had already read in the paper that he was planning to um, not hold hearings on any nomination that Barack Obama made for replacement. And so I talked to him and I, uh, frankly, politely confronted him and he held firm and split hairs and gave all kinds of bogus explanations for uh, why he would not hold hearings. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold, hold on for a second here. Most- Kim, 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 you got to back up here. You ran into Mitch McConnell. I mean, where were you? Down the steps of the <laughs> Capitol or were you in the no, walking down the uh, hall? On vacation. On vacation. You're kidding. In St. John. Oh. At a resort. And I read this in the paper that he wasn't going to hold hearings. And I looked up and saw him at the other breakfast table. Was he in a bathing suit? <laughs> Um, he was wearing a t-shirt that said, keep the, um, FDA off, out of the farm. Okay. And. Mitch McConnell um, in St. John's. Oh my God. He he gave a lot of bogus explanations. And what I'm saying is that is the most egregious flip flop ever that he would not hold those hearings. And now he has clearly stated he will hold hearings on any nominee in President Trump's last year after giving me all kinds of runaround explanations for why he would not. And this type of flip-flop has massive implications for our country for decades to come. And I think it's so egregious and so impactful on our nation compared to what Amy McGrath has done, which I don't think is a good thing. It's concerning. I would really like to hear a better explanation from her. But I think that the media's attention on this kind of thing on, uh, you know, Amy McGrath, as opposed to what Mitch McConnell has done, is the kind of thing that caused the media to be complicit in the election. Kim, can I tell you something? I knew you were going there, and I have got to call you to task, if I may. We have discussed on this show uh, Mitch McConnell's Merrick Garland position and his Donald Trump position maybe a thousand times on this show, maybe 900 times on this show. Amy McGrath did this yesterday. What she did was egregious. No one is, we're not talking equivalency. One can think that Mitch McConnell is a total fraud. And by the way, he did not flip-flop at all, if I may correct you. His position is, I'll confirm right-wing nominees, and I'll do everything I can to stop any Democratic nominee. But it is not inappropriate to criticize Amy McGrath uh, uh, just because the sins of Mitch McConnell are more egregious. So I hear you, and I actually agree with you, except your criticism that uh, we're creating some false equivalency, which, respectfully, we are not even attempting to. But thank you very much, and thanks for telling us the story about your vacation close-up encounter. encounter. How horrifying. You go up to get a pina colada, and who's there but Mitch McConnell in a T-shirt. Can you imagine I had to change hotels immediately? I couldn't take it. But, you know, the pro- part of the problem, getting back to Kim's point yep. for a second, uh, uh, not the point about the, the false equivalency. She didn't use the term false equivalency, but that was the point she was making. The fact that more people in America are not appalled by – and, by the way, you, don't have to, you should not have to be a Democrat or a liberal to be upset about the Merrick Garland thing. It's what you said before about democracy. It's just it's, – it's unconscionable. But uh, uh, it, it, and why aren't there conservatives who believe in the rule of law, who have abandoned Mitch McConnell and said, "Listen, I would prefer Brett Kavanaugh over uh, uh, Merrick Garland any day of the week, because Senator." But that's not the way the system works. The, the GOP is on bended knee to the President of the United States. How, do, mean, they, the, how do they sleep with them? I mean, how do you? 
beats me. But you always you wonder in the post-Trump presidency, you know, what's going to happen? Is it going to be okay to have multiple women accusing you of sexual assault and separate babies from the border and lie every day? Can I, I tell mean, you, I gonna, think the is biggest issue – I've broached this a few times on television, not so much. The biggest issue to me, does Trumpism survive – Donald Trump, or is he? Is it only this man? I hope it's only who this could man. pull off what but, he but, has. But forty some percent of my fellow Americans think it's fine. No, they think he's fine. Uh, yeah, they think uh, that's, he's fine. That may be different from John Doe, right. Or but Mike Pence acting he's fine like Donald is, Trump mystifies me too. It's just I don't don't get it. Michelle and Billingham, uh, you're next, or Bellingham. My apologies. You're next on Boston Public. By the way, I should have given Kim a chance to respond to what I said. My apologies to you, uh, uh, Kim, for not doing that. Michelle and Bellingham, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Hi. Hi. I just want to make sort of a conflicting point that I have left. Biden. Um, for uh, being a longtime politician, I kind of expect him to change his opinions over time or else he would be growing as a person. But uh, on the other hand, um, I'm a little outraged that he didn't have his staff. Or, I mean, who are these people working for him pointing out all the points of the Hyde Amendment and then suddenly change his mind? Uh, that seems disingenuous. Well, um, yeah, uh, you mean before he even... Well, by the way, I, I can't remember his first comment about the Hyde Amendment saying he still support. What was the forum in which he said this? I mean, remember that that ad, that activist for, was it the Civil Liberties Union? The the woman who was in a rope line asked him a question. I do remember. And was, I just can't to say. remember. But, you know, Michelle, I guess the only thing I'd say to you is, and I'm, you know, staff should make sure their boss is always as prepared as possible. I would hope in 2019, in the middle of the debate about whether or not the Supreme Court of the United States is ready to overturn Roe v. Wade, which was the environment in which this all happened, that a person with the brains and the skills of Joe Biden would not need to be prepped to know that government funding matters to a poor woman if she wants an abortion. But obviously he did need staff help. So I guess you're right, Michelle. Thank you for the uh, for the call. What are you looking at? I'm looking at emails. A lot of hostility out there toward Mitch McConnell. Well, I mean, it's, it's tough. I mean, again, I, I, I wish we'd have somebody who shares his politics criticizing him for his his subversion of democracy, which was what it was, what it was. I mean, it's horrible. Judy from New Hampshire. Thank you for calling, Judy. What's up? Hi, Judy. Well, I'm I'm with I'm with Jim totally on this. I. I have a difficult time, though, imagining that the Democratic Party can't find a better candidate in Kentucky to go up against a guy who's the the head of the Senate, for crying out loud. You want your best person there. And this certainly does not seem to be the best person. Well, you know what the irony, Judy, before she made this mistake, I think people would have said, this is like a godsend if you don't like Mitch McConnell. Uh, she is very well respected. She's got this military background that is years. borderline legendary, yeah. and she just obviously what wasn't ready for prime time. On as Chuck Todd said to us, I think maybe she, the most I important think she issue can in recover. that race. I really do. It's possible. I mean, she's a smart woman. She Judy, realized thanks. she she made a really stupid mistake, and uh, she's got to like get herself up to speed before she opens her mouth about things again. And I just think it's it's uh, this was probably not her. I mean, I don't know how you could miss the Kavanaugh hearings, but but maybe she just wasn't paying attention. I don't know. What if she had said, Marjorie, we only have a minute left, instead of upon further reflection and further understanding of his record, that's the one that put me over the edge, uh, further understanding, I would have voted no. What if she said, you know, four hours later, 
I can't believe I said yes before. That's not really what I think. Uh, I answered quickly. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm new to the race here. Let me apologize to the voters of Kentucky. That's not what my position is, and I hope I'm not going to make that kind you know, of mistake like, again. I think, it, I think it would be great if she just said, you know, I am new to this, and I really, I really blundered, and this was stupid of me, and uh, I apologize. I like this guy Acosta. I wish he'd gotten up yesterday and said, if there was one thing I, I could have changed in my career as an attorney, it was to let that I let this guy out easy. This and I want to guy. apologize to all the survivors, and I am which sorry he was unwilling to, to do. Every single one of these women. If he'd done that, I it would have been a whole different story, but he didn't. And um, he lied, too. And that's what everybody yes, does now. They all lie and get, seem to get away with it. Anyway. It's an upbeat discussion. It's Let's an upbeat see if we can discussion. continue the mood. Are we going to be? Uh, yeah, well, who's next? Andrew oh, we're going Cabral. to talk with Andrew Cabral. She's up next. Uh, we're going to talk to her about a great story out of Virginia. And also uh, Donald Trump and the politicization of the Department of Justice. Uh, Andrew Cabral joins us for that and more next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. On Boston Public Radio, the White House is reportedly prepping for nationwide immigration raids on migrant families as early as this weekend. In a few minutes, we'll ask Andrea Cabral if they mean it this time. Is it just the way to keep poll numbers high? And whether they follow through or not, has the damage already been done? Now the threat is out there and fears ripping through immigrant communities. From there, poet Richard Blanco joins us with a collection of summer-themed poems where bright light and dark shadows play starring roles. Former Secretary of Education Paul Revel joins us to talk about how the 2020 candidates are jockeying for that endorsement from the teachers' union. Our schools in Providence, Rhode Island are in total chaos. The big mess on campus with Harvard star economist Roland Fryer being accused of sexual harassment. And what to expect from Boston's new superintendent of public schools now that Brenda Casillas has officially taken charge. All that is next on Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to our number two of Boston Public Radio. I want to give a shout out to our colleagues, Irene Ooh. Monroe and Emmett Price. Oh, the Rev's their, podcast. their new podcast debuted yesterday. You listen? I did. I thought I it was fantastic. Uh, great music choices, too, which I suppose makes Not sense surprising. since Emmett's, Emmett's such a big music guy. Well, you still but it's teach called it. All Revved Up. Because that's what their segment is called here, and um, I think you'll really enjoy it. I'm actually listening tonight. I'm really excited about that. That's great. Congratulations to them, and check it out. Here with us in Studio 3 for another edition of Law & Order is former Suffolk County Sheriff, former Secretary of Public Safety, Andrew Cabral. Andrea is now the CEO of Ascend. Andrea, nice to see you. How are you both? We're good. Uh, we're you. very, very good. So, Andrea... Um, these ICE raids apparently are going to happen uh, this Sunday where... Uh, uh, Officers are going to come to places, we don't know where, 10 cities, and they're going to apparently take away people with deportation notices. Mm-hmm. You know, I just wonder how... Not if, notices, or, I mean, orders, fairness, orders, that's right. People, people that are orders, outstanding yeah. orders, that's correct. People that are supposed to be out of the, the United States. But I'm wondering how this works, if you have any sense of it. I mean, do they notify... If, if it's Boston, do they notify Marty Walsh? Do they notify uh, uh, Police uh, Gross. Commissioner Gross? Do they do, do they tell the cops they're going somewhere? Do they just show up? How, how do you think I think they just works? show up. Just I think up. unless they have a cooperative 
relationship with the local police department and the local police department has been sort of you know turning people in and notifying them and they can rely on the uh you know the their cooperation i think they're just it's the federal government and they just show up and they just do it um but uh, you know, two things. First of all, again, I'll say again for the 500th time, if anybody thought that this was just about the border or anybody thinks that this is not about immigration generally and getting rid of it generally, that you look at things like this. You look at the t- the amount of time, effort, money, and the targeted way that this is being done to immigrants across the board, even if you've been here over in just overstate a visa, uh, to people who are married to immigrants, but they are U.S. citizens, to people at the border, to people who've been living here paying taxes with none of the benefits that you get from paying taxes for years and years and years, this should tell you everything, and there's there's no reason to do this. Can, can I get back to, before we get to the some of the larger implications beyond those with deportation orders, in non in times when there's not antagonism, between local authorities and the White House, even if different parties, but if there's collaboration for, you know, Republicans and Democrats respect each other to a degree. Ordinarily, if something like this were to happen, would uh, uh, would Barack Obama's ICE or whatever was the entity then have called the local mayor before? Would, uh, would uh, George Bush's whatever it was, call the local Democratic mayor, or, or this is generally done as a solo act kind of thing? I, I am not certain under previous administrations, but my just from having dealt with the federal government over, you know, uh, two decades, uh, my sense is that they, they go in under their federal jurisdiction, and it really Let's doesn't do it. matter. You may, like I said, it, the idea of calling a, a friendly police department or a friendly sheriff's office somewhere in the country is merely to get to have backup, I think, for what you're doing. Um, but we had the, you remember the story, the, the, the mayor that um, alerted people that oh, there was going to yeah. be a, So I think that they're also, in, in this worried particular case, they're also worried about that. So, so you're in your house and ICE officials, and this could be Boston, it's 10 major cities. They haven't mm-hmm. said don't yet. Know. But wherever it is, they knock on your door. I hope they don't break your door. I mean, I don't even know how it works. But whatever they do, they're there. You call 911. What does the local police department do? Do they come and check to see that there's a legitimate order or they stay out of it? I mean, what do they do? I cannot imagine that anyone... We'll call. We'll call nine one one. We'll so think either. that nine one one would avail. They'd be able to avail themselves of any sort of protection. I mean, I I've never seen one of these deportation orders, um, but I know that you you know that there are there are a, and people should you know people who are concerned about this should Google um, know your rights. Um, the ACLU has a great know your rights for immigration thing uh, for uh, 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 that kind of encounter with with ICE. And go through the checklist of things that you have a right to refuse to do. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure what that is in the face of a deporta- an actual deportation order from a judge, because that's a judicial order. But it is always a good idea to know your rights. And if you're in a household that has someone in it, even if everyone else is a citizen, but has someone in it who might be subject to one of these raids, find out what your rights are before that knock comes on the door. You know, on that front, could one of you guys in the control room do exactly that? I intended to do that because I read a piece that the Civil Liberties Union put out over last weekend or the weekend before. Yeah, I've read it too. In I which think. they talked about. You're entitled to ask for documents from the federal. If you could tell us what the two or three principal notions are while Andrea is still here, we'll return to that topic. 
in a yes. And you know, the other thing, which I know is obvious, but it bears mentioning, it was a great, I think it was a piece in the Boston Globe the other day, is it's not just people with deportation orders. It's people who are worried because of the, the broad, often extra legal reach. Right. Uh, people aren't going right. to doctors. Right. They're keeping their kids home. People who do not have deportation orders, but her people who are immigrants right. uh, uh, are not taking their uh, letting their kids go to school and for that's fear of what the hell the is going to happen. The fear and the cruelty is the point from a president who does not do national security briefings, who is uninterested in doing anything meaningful around election security. Actually, doesn't even want to be briefed about the problems with election security. He is focusing all of his attention on things like this because he's got Stephen Miller, who is the head of his policy, and he needs red meat to throw to his base. And I, you know, and and on top of all of this, you know. Uh, the cherry on the top of this, you know, crappy Sunday is that there's a there's a Speaker of the House who has the ability to impeach him and is somehow just sitting around not doing that in circumstances where he's literally throwing this country into greater and greater chaos and 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 just ignoring the rule of law and telling people to not show up to Congress to testify and not, you know, uh, responding to subpoenas. He hasn't given it. Their administration has not given a single document that Congress has asked for, and various committees have asked for volumes of documents. And somehow, nothing's being done, and he is now getting ready to send ICE into, uh, I don't know how many thousands of households across 10 cities in this country. Well, you know, we were going to get to this later, but just spend 90 seconds on it now before we get to this amazing story in the Washington Post you pointed out to us that really, I assume most of our listeners may have missed, we had missed. Yeah, it wasn't later. Virginia, I made you, a mistake. It's it was Maryland, Maryland. Yeah. I'm sorry. Is... Uh, uh, one of the things, I don't know what level this rises to, the Department of Justice is essentially right. the in-house counsel that, exactly. to the President of the United States. Exactly. When they flip, when he attempted, when Barr attempted to fire, fire, take all the lawyers from the Department of Justice off the citizenship census uh, question, a, a citizenship question on the census, because they conceded after the Supreme Court, okay, we're not going to do it. And the president obviously said, oh, yes, we are. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. And he attempted to dismiss all the lawyers. Right. Essentially, it's because his boss, not the attorney general of the United States, but the, the lawyer for the president, otherwise known as the attorney general of the United States, uh, 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 you know, how high can I should I jump, Mr. President? It really is a scary proposition. It is a scary proposition. And, 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 and again, because we keep for some reason not believing him when he says the one thing Trump does do in the midst of all of his lies, he clearly signals and sometimes says right out in the open what it is that his priorities are and what he intends to do if given the chance. And he has said a million times and lately, most recently on NBC, the biggest mistake that he feels that he's made since he was president, and this is astonishing that he considers it this, was to uh, have uh, made Jeff Sessions attorney general. Why? Because he knows exactly what he's facing. He knows exactly what level of criminality, malfeasance, unethical behavior stands to be exposed. And Jeff Sessions recused himself. Well, now he's got the guy. He's got his Roy Cohn. Mm -hmm. And Bill Barr seems to care absolutely nothing for whatever reputation he built in the past for giving a damn about the DOJ. And they are taking career people who are objecting to not following the rule of law and retaliating against them by taking them off cases. It's... it. I, that's why when I talk about Nancy Pelosi, I sound so exercised and I'm so upset about it because this isn't just one thing that is happening. It is something that is happening on all fronts. We're losing the rule of law and therefore the democracy. 
And and there's only one way to stop that before 2020, and that's impeachment. You could, they could impeach Bill Barr. They could impeach Acosta. They could impeach any cabinet secretary. Not only is Trump not being impeached, none of the people who are doing his bidding, and you can certainly get a ton of information uh, during impeachment hearings from his cabinet secretaries about what he's up to, none of the people who are doing his bidding are suffering any consequences as a result either. And they have individual responsibilities to this country. And you think the reason Pelosi's not doing this is why? I think it's political. I think she's made a calculation. I also think that she's stubborn uh, for all of her, you know, sort of past brilliance on uh, political matters. This is not a political issue. Yeah. And she doesn't I don't know why she doesn't see that. Don't leave this. Before we leave this, this, there was a great piece in Vanity Fair and other people have asked this, too, about, okay, the president has managed to totally politicize the Department of Justice. Uh, The question asked whether he's also going to manage to politicize the Southern District of New York. And by the way, just in case we forget, they're investigating uh, the president's role in paying off Stormy Daniels, the the, uh, Deutsche Bank, which loaned uh, Trump all this two billion dollars over 20 years when other banks wouldn't loan him any money. Uh, they're tracking the inaugural committee, which is supposedly uh, or allegedly uh, rife with, with corruption. Um, as many people think that the, the Southern District of New York is the biggest threat to Trump. And that's the question this article asks. Okay, he succeeded with the DOJ. Will he now succeed? And I should point out, by the way, that in February, the New York Times reported that Trump asked uh, Barr's predecessor, remember Matthew Whitaker, um, whether a loyalist could be put in charge sure of he did. the SDNY's Sure he did, because he, he openly obstructs justice, because yeah. there's no consequences he does with impunity. Does, yet, will he try? Absolutely. I mean, they call the SDNY the sovereign district, um, sort of tongue-in-cheek sovereign district of New York, because it is, within the overall DOJ, almost a country unto itself. Don't forget, you know he's going to try to do it. Preet Bharara was the first one he got rid of after he Preeparar was the head of SDNY. Yeah, right. And he brings him in and he tries to extract a loyalty pledge or he starts trying to contact him. Um, Bahar is completely uncomfortable with it and it becomes apparent that he's not going to get what he wants from him and he gets rid of him. I don't know how it can even be a question on any front, congressional, judicial, uh, executive branch, whether or not Trump will seek to control it, obstruct justice, uh, force it to not abide by the rule of law. The census this question. Well, can I give a little little bit of a contrary opinion on this, but it's not wildly well informed. I know what you're going to say. Why should that be different from any other day, Jim? (laughs) So I'll beat you to it. You're thinking of it. Uh, Berman, who is the Southern District U.S. Attorney, is a buddy of Trump's. Mm -hmm. One, he recused himself in the Michael Cohen case, which was the total right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And he indicted... Uh, Jeffrey Epstein. And the Jeffrey Epstein thing has potential to be an embarrassment exactly. yeah. for the president. That gave me some hope, no, but, I, but I'm saying, and again, this may be naive, those two actions are not the actions of a Trump sycophant. No, now, I'm so not suggesting that he is. Oh, what I'm suggesting is that Trump, he isn't. right, because there are never consequences to any of the times he's done it before. And he's done it up, literally up and down the executive branch line. And the reason you said to me, do I think he'll be successful? I said, yes, is because I have no indication that there is a line that he can he can cross that will be a bridge too far for Nancy Pelosi and, and the House Democrats we're that to- won't defy her. We're talking to Andrea Cabral. This question, I think, is for you, Marjorie, if I may. Am I allowed to ask you a question? Certainly. Okay. So it's not a quiz. I would assume we are going to get not one negative email for Andrea Cabral's uh, 
pretty serious criticism of Nancy Pelosi. Mm -hmm. I have just checked. We've gotten no negative email emails that Ocasio-Cortez essentially savaged Nancy Pelosi this morning, saying she's picking on four newly elected women of color. Seth Moulton's criticism of Nancy Pelosi was much more mild. In fact, he said she's doing a great job than either uh, Ocasio-Cortez or Cabral. And we were flooded with people saying he was a sexist dog. He should resign from Congress. People should run against him. Why is he a sexist dog and a, a well, criminal, essentially? And well, Cabral I've, I, and Ocasio-Cortez have heartfelt criticism of Pelosi. I, I thought one of the things that hurt Seth Moulton was talking about her age a lot. I Actually, that that... he wouldn't. I broached that with him. Isn't age part of it? But it was – he, he talked about how they had been there forever, that well, they were – they, they have. Well, but that was a way of saying they're old. No, I, I thought for, that was part you of it. For my it? part, I, I did not believe that Seth Moulton was – the right person to be Speaker of the House in the times that we were going into. So he, wasn't, I opposed, he wasn't looking to be Speaker of the House. No, there was a time when he was kind of interested in sort of being in the mix and, or being part of the the essential move up once okay. she moved okay. out, right? And I didn't think that that was appropriate. The midterm elections, I think, reflected, among other things, the desire to have Speaker Pelosi be sort of at the forefront, and the midterms were about Trump. They weren't just about health care. The reason that I have changed and I have begun to criticize her is that I think she is, uh, for for reasons that, while I can explain them, I can articulate them, are still intellectually inexplicable to me. She's failing the country by not doing the very thing that the midterm vote was about and the very thing that she has to be hearing from the base of Democrats and within uh, her own well, caucus. Especially since she herself says that he that right. self-impeaches exactly. every... And she's on, she go, takes the podium every couple of days to say how terrible he is and is doing nothing about it. Okay, so Marjorie teased, uh, before you came on, a story written by Jessica Contrera, who is a reporter for The Washington Post. It's called. It's big and long. A black principal, four white teens, and the quote senior prank end quote that became a hate crime. We just read it this morning. It is one powerful piece. Could you give the highlights or the lowlights before we talk about it, Andrew? Cabrera? I was sort of uh, surprised when I came across it too. Although it was prominently featured in the Washington Post, uh, this is a beautifully written story, and it's it's very layered in terms of uh, if you really want to sort of dig deep and drill down as to what you can find. So there's a there's a principal, I'm not sure how you pronounce this high school. It's spelled G-L-E-N-E-L-G. Yeah, horrible Glen, name. Glenleg They should rename high school. it first yeah, they, thing. <laughs> that would be a good idea. Uh, Glenleg uh, High School in Maryland. And the principal there is black. Oh, his name is David Burton. Although the, the vast majority, I think only 5% uh, of the students are students of color. And it was right around graduation time. Uh, the class of 2018 was graduating, and he uh, came to the school uh, fairly early and found uh, literally the school's premises are blanketed in graffiti. There are swastikas. There's the words KKK. There's uh, the Burton himself is, is specifically uh, his name is specifically there, uh, saying that he calling him the N word. Um, there are things there about Jews. There are things there about uh, 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 gays. There are, you know, curses, all of the penises. There's everything, right? So they do their best to kind of sort of clean it up before they get there. But they're able to uh, – they can't clean up all of it. The students clearly know about it. It does sort of affect the graduation. They immediately go to camera footage. And even though these students, these four students that did it, they're all male, they're all white – um, put the T-shirts around their faces, they could easily pick out um, who it was. One kid in particular 
um, by his sort of body shape. Uh, his name is Seth. I can't Tyler, remember his last name. Tyler. Tyler, something like that. Uh, they picked him out. Uh, and so he was actually uh, brought in, I think, during the graduation. Yeah. They, He's tapped on the yeah. shoulder, shoulder and said, come yeah. with me. And the, and the person who questions him is a guy named Willingham, who is his soccer coach. And Willingham had actually, when they realized who the four were, Willingham had identified him as the one most likely to confess immediately, <laughs> um, which he did. But the story itself is... Is a little bit of it's about Burton's reaction. It's about how it has affected the school. It's about the difference in reaction between white students and white parents and black students and black parents. Black students and black parents weren't surprised that this happened at all because they see it and they feel it in this community all the time. White students and white parents are, are of course, of course, aghast because this is in-your-face racism, right? So these four four students end up going before a judge who, uh, coincidentally, is black, as well. Um, they're charged with a hate crime, and so there's also the re- it's also the story is also about the reaction to them being charged with a hate crime, and the underlying part of this is the students themselves, particularly this kid Seth, and his 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 profile is more fully developed than the other students in this story. Absolutely believe that while they did a racist thing, that they're not racist, and you talk to their parents, and their parents say. You know they're not they're they're not racist they're not but but when you when you read the beginning of the story and and this is where uh, Jessica Contreras is just brilliant she talks about the evolution of how this came to happen so initially they're just going to do a stupid senior prank some dumb thing you know you kidnap the other high school's mascot or something like that something you know uh, silly like that and they were just going to spray paint class of twenty eighteen. They get there, and one of them starts to do all of this, uh, the swastikas and all this other stuff, and the other four immediately start doing it. And, And a big part of this story is about how, if that does not live inside you anyway, you're able to go from doing something innocuous that at most might be considered a vandalism uh, or a graffiti on school premises to something that is a hate crime and how you can plausibly, unless you're just totally in denial, plausibly say that this came out of me, but it is not in me. You know, I, I was in it, but I'm not of it. And that's the real point of this story. And, and my reaction to the story was that that happens in my experience, that happens all the time. You know, white people can be involved, get, they're overheard saying something, making a joke. Uh, I, I, this has happened to people that I know and that I know well. Called out on it, and it's sort of, but I'm not, but I'm not racist. I just kind of did a racist thing. Well, you know what? If I go into a bank and I take a bunch of money that's not mine, I can't say, well, I did take money and I had no intention of, of giving it back, but that doesn't make me a thief. That doesn't make me a bank robber. And the reason there's no introspection around that is because most of this country wraps itself around people who make that excuse and they allow them and enable them to make that excuse because the rest of the country, personal friends, people who don't know them, people who get on radio like me and talk about it, who are not me because I don't feel that way, but white people that do are at great pains and are desperate to believe that you can do racist things and not be racist. Was it Andrew Gillum when he was running for Florida? He was one of these candidates in the last elections who was asked, I think, if he thought Trump was a racist? Was him, whoever was a brilliant answer. He was asked. was a Gillum and he said uh, something like, uh, I don't know if he's a racist, but I know that racists 
think, think he's, he's a racist, racist. or consider- which is a, which is a, a hearty endorsement. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, you, you, know, you know there were oh, a couple ahead. of great things in this piece too, which was really made you think about. Uh, they talk about how these kids, you know, after this happens and they're in trouble, they're running off to the Holocaust Museum and they're running off to learn about KKK and lynchings and all this kind of stuff. So it's like they're trying to they're trying to kind of make amends. But you get to the end. Well, that's what you say. Right. They're try- or trying to do a CYA well, try- as whatever quickly they're trying as possible to do. But as you say, when they get to the end, that the, the line that stuck with me, I'm paraphrasing, was something like they all believed that it was possible to do what they did and not mean it. You know, right. So it's the same thing as you're saying. They all thought that it was possible to do that. And I thought that was fascinating. I also thought it was fascinating that they talked about how when the principal, the black principal gets up and talks about this at graduation – Lots of parents refuse to clap or to, you know, so says what the, pa- the, the parents reflection, are they, from. they know it's a reflection on them. And then they had the black student president, a young woman who talked about how, as you said, she wasn't, she'd experienced this hostility during her whole career in high school and wondered if she should be carrying pepper spray to protect herself. And to stuff. graduation, well, should right, she right. Uh, carry pepper well, spray? What the principal said was this whole idea that they're, you know, trying to do all of this uh, community service in advance of sentencing so that they can say to the judge, well, look at all the things that I've done. Um, he said this was all covered. They were taught about the Holocaust. They were taught about the civil rights uh, movement. They were taught about lynching. Certainly enough to know that these words would hurt that they carried meaning that there was history behind them. And so even if you, you know, I'm sure part of some of their excuse was, well, I wasn't really paying attention in class. You cannot be, uh, you know, sort of in society where this kind of thing has happened, certainly uh, since Trump, but, you know, it's skyrocketed since Trump, but has always happened in our history and not know, if you didn't know that these words were incendiary, why would you use them? Why wouldn't you write chair or table or, Joe, you know, you know, eat at Joe's, right? You didn't do that. You wrote these because you know exactly what they mean. So, you know, you know the th- by the way, you know, as you were talking, you know, I just realized the story we haven't talked about in months is uh, because they didn't know any better either. They didn't mean anything. The attorney general and uh, governor of Virginia right. are still there. You know, what, also, can I, I, wait, wait, can okay. I respond to one thing uh, Andrea uh, said? We are talking to one of our coworkers, Arjun, about, uh, earlier today about – whether we had ever done anything after we'd all read the story, the three of us, whether we had ever done anything when we were younger, which we considered to be not who we were. And, you know, the analogy I can think of, I've told you, I don't know if I've said this on the air. I'm sure I have, but I know I said it to you constantly. For, for This is not hyperbole. For six months after Harvey Weinstein broke and then Me Too 2.0 became an everyday kind of thing, every day I woke up, and I mean every day I woke up, and said to myself, did I do something horrible, not Harvey Weinstein-esque, but something that totally crossed the line when I was a kid that I've just forgotten about because it was sort of, quote, acceptable, you know, a Kavanaugh-esque kind of horrible thing. And luckily, I've concluded so far that I did not. But then I'm saying to myself, and I ask the question to all of us here, have you ever done anything totally out of character? I'm not trying to defend them at all. I hope I haven't. I've done some horrible things. I don't think I've ever done anything so out of character that I would try a line like these kids are trying, saying, I did that horrible thing, but I'm not that person. Have you? No, I don't think that I have either. I mean, I think about it all the time. I, you know, I, I would say no. I, I, the one thing that sticks with me is a time that I was in a convenience store, and there was a young man 
who I look back on now and think was likely transgender. He certainly was. He was. He pre, you know preoperative. Um, certainly was was dressed as a mm-hmm. as a young woman. But and I remember being in the line, and I remember some kids ahead of me making fun of him. And I remember that I didn't say anything. And to this day, oh, I I I I, I think about trying to find this person to apologize and think about how horrible and I was much younger but just because I knew how it felt to be targeted based on who you are and I didn't say anything mm-hmm. and that enabled them but I you know I can I can't I'm not so um doctrinaire that I can't uh say I'm not an absolutist, so I can believe that someone can can get caught up in something and do something that doesn't define who they are. I think my larger point is that when it comes to racism in this country, particularly racism or racist acts that are perpetrated by white people, the what rushes in in the face of that are excuses and the and the and a great willingness to accept excuses. We never get to the point of drilling down to find out whether or not some things beyond the act itself are racist because people rush in to fill that vacuum with, of course it wasn't. Of course they're just young. Of course they weren't thinking. Of course one act doesn't define a person. And yet one act defines to the point of years of incarceration people in this country who are not white. And we accept that with equal fervor. And that's the problem that I have with this. I'm so glad you These said, are four different kids. I'm so glad I, you th- said that thing about about the, the transgender person's convenience store, though, because I think this is something I have been guilty of, and I'm trying to get better as I get older. But hearing things, whether it's about someone Jewish or somebody gay or somebody black or whatever, and I don't say anything. Well, we've had, we, you and, and I have talked on the air. Our fathers uh, crossed many a line in terms of things they said, mine in particular— and I can think of one or two occasions where I was strong enough to have done the right thing. I can think of many more occasions where, where I didn't just, do the right thing. And I just I, – I, I convinced myself that that failure to act was not – in a situation like that was not as egregious right. as doing a heart. You, heart. you know what I mean? I mean even my reaction to your story is I would like to think I would have said something there too. But a failure to do the right thing is to me generally not yeah. nearly as bad as – Affirmatively doing a horrible you know, thing. The Catholics like these say, four kids didn't depending on depend, depending on how far it gets, because well, that, maybe yeah, that's true. Yeah, of course, because silence true, in the face of genocide, right, of, obviously, obviously is a problem. Right, right. But can I just sum it up? Omission, and, sins of omission, Andrea. Remember that's, those that from is catechism? what they are. Yeah. So <laughs> the two words that I think sort of sum up the universality of the desire to make excuses for racism. So we talk about it on an individual level. These kids, these parents, another another story's uh, principles. Um, Economic anxiety. If you you need a you need a countrywide a national example, we called it economic anxiety when people voted for Donald Trump. We now know, oh. in fact, because there have been studies done, people have been polled since then. It had very little to do with if not, if anything to do with economic anxiety. Trump gave voice to something that was inside tens of millions of people in this country that they wanted to have a voice and they wanted to feel validated by. And that's why it's not economic anxiety. That may be the biggest and most recent excuse that we have, we have given as a country for the election of the most horrible president and the most racist president. Uh, oh, maybe not the most. I'm thinking about Andrew Jackson. Um, but he's up there, right? Because, it, because the, when you are the default race, you rush in to um, protect your more pristine view of yourself. 
while simultaneously casting fairly harsh judgment on everybody that doesn't look like you. That's just the way the culture of this country works. It's not every single person, obviously, but it's the way the culture of the country works. If, if black kids had done this, do you think for a second, if they had targeted gays, if they had targeted Jews, if they had targeted, do you think for a second that there would have been a question about this being a hate crime? No. And no. by the way, we, we, the one thing we left out of this story before you go is I'm sure people are curious to know what kind of punishment they got. And essentially what the judge did to varying degrees was community service for everybody of significant time, I think in the 180-day range. Each of them was required. go requ- around and apologize to a lot of people. Each of them was required to do weekend jail time. I think it ranged from eight weeks to 16 weeks, and each of them got fewer weeks because of good behavior. And they are, uh, they will ultimately, assuming that they behave themselves in the future, have the hate crime sure. conviction expunged. From, you're appalled by that? I'm expunged not, from the record? I'm not appalled by it generally. Because I do believe that you, you get to move past a certain, depending on the behavior, certainly not murder or something like that, you get to move past things that happen when you're a juvenile. But um, just in the context of this particular crime and what happened here in this community, putting it behind them will be much easier for them, I think, then. Maybe not for this kid, Seth. Who, although he, he, I don't know about the. Maybe I'm giving the other short shrift. I was amazed he spoke to the Washington Post. He he has a lot of feelings around this, even though I I have hope that he will, as he gets older, in time, come to revisit the way he saw his behavior. I hope. You'll be interesting to compare in ten years. The Maryland Four, who did do something horrible, to the Central Park Five, who Mm -hmm. didn't do anything. And the impact on their lives. Well, we uh, know right. a lot already. Well, so about far the we do, but let's see lives. how these kids yeah. recover from this too. So, Andrew Cabral, to sum this up, when somebody says, "I don't have a racist bone in my body," we should be suspicious. Is that if they've done racist? <laughs> well, anybody things. that says I don't have a racist bone in my body is that's a, that is a ridiculous thing to say because there's no such thing as a racist bone. It's about <laughs> how you think, how you behave, how you are acculturated to deal with. Your place in the world and your privilege in the world and, and the lack of that that you see in others. And nobody's gonna, nobody is perfect around this. I'm not perfect around it either. But the point is anybody who says I don't have a racist bone in my body is that's just, you know, they're, they're trying to sell you something. I'm glad you pointed out the story to us. Can we say one more time? I threw mine out while we what? were talking. What's the, the, I don't uh, have it. The Washington oh, it's Post, right here. the oh. title again. If you want to Google it it's and read it, a, it's long and great. It's in the Washington Post. It must have been in their magazine, I would imagine. No, it's it was long. actually no, it was midweek. On the paper. It was the 9th. Oh, it yeah. was. Okay. Yeah. A black principal, four white teens, and the senior prank that became a hate crime. Jessica Contreras, is that the uh, writer's name? It's very good. And you're right, the layers, the layering of it is really good. Okay, Andrea Cabral joins us every week for Law & Order. She's the former Suffolk County Sheriff and Secretary of Public Safety, and now the CEO of Ascend. Thank you very much, Andrea Cabral. Up next, poet Richard Blanco joins us for another edition of The Village Voice. Keep your dial tuned to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. to Boston Public Radio, Marjorie and Jim Browdy. Joining us online to lead another edition of Village Voice, where we discuss poetry and how it can help us better understand our lives and times, is Richard Blanco. Richard, as you know, is the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history. His new book, How to Love a Country, which is spectacular, deals with various socio-political issues that shadow America. Richard, welcome back. Hi. Good to be back. <laughs> good to be back and good to talk to you again, Richard. So, 
Do you have a theme today, we Richard love Blanco? Themes. Well, we love themes. Sort of, uh, we're in the summary or summerish poems, maybe a couple of those. And, uh, Excellent. Uh, w- one that's kind of post, uh, post-4th of July, so to speak. But wait a second, isn't summer too upbeat and positive for you <laughs> poets? <laughs> well, it, well, as you'll see, uh, uh, we'll find some darkness in it. <laughs> okay. Thank you. So what, uh, we're, I know included in the list today is one by you, yes, which I guess some we'll days save. See. Yeah. But uh, what are we starting with today, Richard Blanco? Well, I'm going to do a poem by Ada Limon, whose uh, book, mm-hmm. the, the Caring, is just been, just an amazing book. Uh, came out uh, last year, uh, which is still relatively new for a book of poetry, but one of my favorite poets. I've read her before. Um, and this poem inspired one of my own poems, which I'm not going to read today, but inspired also one of my own poems about um, uh, about America, the beautiful, the song. This one's called A New National Anthem. Um, and what I love what she does with this poem is she takes this idea of the anthem and how it turns into this this, this sort of personal anthem and song of, of need and want. And as you said, Jim, we'll find some darkness in here. <laughs> a new national anthem. The truth is, I've never cared for the national anthem. If you think about it, it's not a good song. Too high for most of us with the rocket's red glare. And then there are the bombs. Always, always, there's war and bombs. Once I sang it at homecoming and threw even the tenacious high school band off key. But the song didn't mean anything. Just a call to the field, something to get through before the pummeling of youth. And what are the stanzas we never sing? The third that mentions no refuge could save the hireling and the slave. Perhaps the truth is every song of this country has an unsung third stanza, something brutal shaking underneath us as we blindly sing the high notes with the beer sloshing in the stands, hoping our team wins. Don't get me wrong. I do like the flag, how it undulates in the wind like water, elemental, and best when it's humbled, brought to its knees, clung to by someone who has lost everything. When it's not a weapon, when it flickers, when it folds up so perfectly you can keep it until it's needed, until you can love it again until the song in your mouth feels like sustenance, a song where the notes are sung by even the ageless woods, the short grass plains, the red river gorge, the fistful of land left unpoisoned, that song that's our birthright, that's sung in silence when it's too hard to go on, that sounds like someone's rough fingers weaving into another's, That sounds like a match being lit in an endless cave. The song that says, my bones are your bones, and your bones are my bones. And isn't that enough? So... (laughs) Can you tell us about her? We've discussed her before, and when you read from her... Tell us about her again. Well, uh, Ala's a, a, a very contemporary, about my age, a little bit younger than myself. Um, she has this incredible uh, uh, 
as you can see in this poem, incredible weaving of sort of darkness and hope and, and, and hope at the same time, this incredible talk texture with language um, and how she's able to subvert some ordinary things in life. Um, I think we remember her, well, I think we did a poem with her walking the dog and remember the leash and, and how she takes these quiet moments of life and sort of builds these great metaphors and these great figurative uh, statements out of them. And this, and, uh, and she's done this in this, in, in this, in this song, you know, one of the things that, Fourth uh, of July is not my favorite holiday <laughs> um, because of how it gets washed out and all this kind of like you know all this kind of uh, I guess uh, traditions that have been uh, that have been so uh, have lost so much meaning right um, and we're just like drinking sloshing beer you know <laughs> like just do we ever really really are we really celebrating the birth of our country are we really even thinking about our ideals are we even thinking about underneath all this sort of picnics and and, and, and again, beer drinking and fireworks going off, or even thinking about anything deeper than that. And I think that's what she's trying to bring out in this poem, both on a sort of collective level, but also on a personal level, right? This underlying song that we're not singing that in a way, in this poem is very, I mean, I mean this book just came out in 2018. I think there's a hint here of, you know, the troubles that we're sort of facing as a democracy right now, and sort of this unsung third stanza that becomes um, this big comes like a figurative piece of what we're not saying to each other, what we're not singing about. Um, so I love how she's able to just take this ordinary, these ordinary moments and just, and just blow out all the figurative meaning uh, in them. You know, I, I, July 4th, getting back to what you said, wasn't my favorite holiday either, until I learned during the president's address last Thursday that the Continental Army took over the airports. <laughs> And when I found out that they, I didn't even know we had them, but the fact, when I found out we had taken them over, I was so proud that it sort of changed right, everything okay, for me. Yeah. Apparently not you there. You know, the poet, you said your, your America the Beautiful again was inspired by this uh, Limon poem. That's in your new book. Is it? It's it is yes 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 it's in the new book and, I, thought, yeah. I, and that book in that uh, in that I took again the song of America the beautiful and and I was just thinking about that kind of innocent kind of patriotism that when you're you know when you're in grade school before there's parties before there's you know before there's all this uh, you know all this politics uh, around your life and you're just sort of really sort of believing and. And um, and um, celebrating those founding ideas of our country, and with with a, a certain like a kind of an innocent, an innocent patriotism that I think we can um, we sometimes need to all get back to, and sort of is the grounding root of what we're uh, what we're all talking about in some ways, right? So yeah, I was inspired by uh, this poem. And I love what she does too when she talks about the the flag. Um, not just the flag flying, which we see all the time, but the flag yeah. being folded, as you see it at a military funeral, and and you know when she says how it folds up so perfectly, because you always are amazed at the way uh, the the military men and women that are there are able to do that and hand it to the mother or the widow or or whatever, and and the, yeah, that's it, a, it's a, such a, a I think that's such an emotional. Yeah, it's so, it's so precise and, and it's so uh, such a keen eye of her and did that that gesture. Also, if you're thinking about folding up the flag, it's sort of here's a person who has um, who's given up their life for this country, but you're also folding up the flag and putting it away in a way, which is which is 
oddly, which is in some ways ironic or, or interesting how yeah. uh, this idea, okay, I'm going to, this person died, forget country in some way, right? Like this is, this is someone who has dear and near to my life. And you put that flag away. Like she says, uh, you can, you keep it until it's needed until you can love it again. Cause there's a certain amount of, you know, anger. I mean, I, there's another sort of thing that I think gets glossed over a lot of what, what it means to be a veteran, uh, you know, gets a little glossed over sometimes, but there's a lot of pain involved for the family and there must be like in any kind of grieving there you know there's there's probably this sense of darn it you know like um what about this country with that you know this my husband or my brother or my wife or my husband you know gave up their life for and that that she hints at that there you know until you can love it again right can we can we can we move on to your poem now, or is that sure. an okay order? Or do you want to do the James Wright poem next? No, I think that James. What I, I I'll do. Uh, I'll do uh, my poem next. Um, oh good. Oh which good. Which is which is a little. <laughs> excuse me, I have a little cold today, or something. One of those summer colds wants to catch me. Um, but uh, this poem was inspired. Um, I, I used to live on. Uh, on the beach when I lived in my, uh, Miami beach, uh, right on the water and, uh, just surprised at how every morning, um, sort of, as the poem says, every morning the landscape changed and it was still sort of the same ocean, the same sea I was looking at every morning and thinking about that as a sort of figuratively or as a metaphor about, of nature, how powerful nature is like, you know, the sky is always the sky yet it's always different. The sea is always the same, the sea, but it's always different. How this urge of our human human nature to constantly want to change, to want to be different, to constantly explore ourselves and the world in different ways, but yet we need some kind of stability and consistency. So this poem sort of speaks to that uh, a little bit, but it's also just about just a summer landscape. And, um, and I think summer, because we're so much more outdoors, we're so much more in contact with nature and not being threatened by 18 feet of snow in Maine. Um, yeah. um, we kind of, uh, we're kind of engaging with nature in a different way. And this poem, I think, touches upon that. So it's called Some Days, Some Days the Sea. The sea is never the same twice. Today the waves open their lion's mouths, hungry for the shore, and I feel the earth helpless. Some days their foamy edges are lace at my feet, the sea a sheet of green silk. Sometimes the shore brings souvenirs from a storm. I sift spoils of seagrass, find a broken finger of coral, a torn fan, examine a sponge's hollow throat, watch a man-of-war dye a sapphire in the sand. Some days there's nothing but sand, quiet as snow. I walk eyes on the wind, sometimes laden with silver-tasting salt, sometimes still as the sun. Some days the sun is a dollop of honey and raining light on the sea, glinting diamond dust. Sometimes there are only clouds, clouds, Sometimes solid as continents drifting across the sky. Other times wispy white roses that swirl into tigers, swirl into cathedrals, swirl into hands. And I remember, some days, I'm still a boy on this beach, wanting to catch a seagull, cup a tiny silver fish, build a perfect sandcastle. Some days I'm a teenager blind to death even as I watch waves seep into nothingness. 
Some days I'm a man, tired of being a man, sleeping in the care of dusk's slanted light, or a man scared of being a man, seeing some god in the moonlight streaming over the sea. Some days I imagine myself walking the shore with feet as worn as driftwood, old and afraid of my body. Someday I suppose I'll return someplace, like waves trickling through sand back to the sea without any memory of being. But if I could choose my eternity, it would be here aging with the moon, enduring in the space between every grain of sand and in the cusp of every wave and every seashell's hollow. You know, Richard, this is an odd thing to say, but I thought of you when I was listening and or reading the Mueller report because... Who does well, that? Well, oh, I love that. I was complaining about the fact that, that uh, Robert Mueller is not a guy for details. He's not a guy for examples. And how images, um, he euphemizes everything. And the classic example is he doesn't say Donald Trump grabbed women by the you-know-what and said he could get away with it because he's famous. He says he talked disparagingly of women. And I thought, he needed to read more poetry. When you have that, when you have that line, like the man of war die a sapphire in the sand, the sponges hollow throat, and the clouds continents. I mean, it's it's all these wonderful, distinct, detailed images. You know, the tiny silverfish, this perfect well, sandcastle. Yeah. yeah, you hit you hit the you hit it on the nose. I mean, it's one of, of course, the golden rules of poetry is show don't tell. And by that, we mean invest invest the meaning in the imagery, right? And showing um, and and disparaging <laughs> disparagingly doesn't no. really quite. Conjure an image, right? Um, and so that—that's part of the power of poetry is that it, it makes us—it's the language of experience, and and by that I mean sensory details, all the five senses, because we move through the world, right? Uh, experience. I always tell my classes, and I begin some of my classes with like, how do we absorb information from the world? And everybody looks at you like, oh, the internet, oh, this or that, and, and ultimately we come down, we conclude that it's only through the five senses. Everything that becomes an abstract thought or abstract word at some point is a sensory experience. So disparagingly is really an abstracted <laughs> kind of, it says nothing, right? The more vague and abstract language uh, becomes, the less and less it, it shows, the less and less it, 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 it allows us to imagine, to experience what is really being talked about. So, um, yeah, Muller, yeah, he would have, he would have had a hard time. <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, I, since Marjorie digressed to Muller, I wasn't going to do this, but Muller's even farther afield than I was going to go. Your opening line, when you say the sea is never the same twice, you want to remind me of one of my favorite lines from movies ever. Did either of you see Atlantic City with Burt Lancaster? Oh, you're going to tell us about the lemons, Jim? No, 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 no. Oh, oh. no, that was pretty incredible with Susan Sarandon. You know, let's, but we're not going to get into that. It was, I think Louis Mal did it. But in any case, it was Susan Sarandon and Burt Lancaster. And Burt Lancaster is this older guy. And he's standing, he's, it's in Atlantic City, which is sort of a rundown kind of place. And he's looking at the Atlantic Ocean. He has a great line. Yeah. 
you, and he says something like, you should have seen the Atlantic Ocean back then, meaning, you know, it was really something then as opposed to now. <laughs> so I know that was not your point, but if Marjorie can talk more, right. I can <laughs> talk Atlantic. No, Atlantic no it was. <laughs> no, that's it. But you made me think about how uh, this poem also sort of speaks to, you know, um, I think that contemplation that, you know, when, when you look at the sea and something like it. I mean, just it's really contemplation about life, death, mortality, all this stuff, and 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 looking at something as grand as a sea or the stars. I, I tend to end a lot of my poems in stars to the point <laughs> of annoying. Um, I'm like, okay, but it's like, you know, what can you say after the stars or well, the sea or mountains? You talk a lot about yourself as a kid right? in your poetry. It just kind of says it all. Not a fair characterization. You do, don't you? Yeah. No, no, yeah. of course. I think I think a lot of poets, even 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 poets in their seventies and eighties, still have uh, some childhood poems because, of course, that's where it all begins. That's where we're, we're imprinted not only not only psychologically, but also with language. How we learn to see the world through language, and I think we we go back to our childhoods in, in a ways to reconstruct and who we are as adults and. Um, and uh, it's a, it's it's almost uh, it's it's almost very typical, especially beginning writers. I mean, we just go right back to the source uh, as in order to move forward with with thinking about who and what so we are we feeling as adults. With, uh, James Wright, uh, Richard Blanco. Yeah, yeah, James Wright. It's a short poem. Um, I think another summary kind of poem. Uh, this is this poem is really mostly all about the last line, which we can talk about. <laughs> um, uh, at length, uh, which is one of the beautiful things about um, about poetry and ambiguity. Lying in ha- lying in a hammock at William Duff's farm in Pine Island, Minnesota. Over my head, I see the bronze butterfly, asleep on the black trunk, blowing like a leaf in green shadow. Down the ravine behind the empty house, the cowbells follow one another into the distances of the afternoon. To my right, in a field of sunlight between two pines, the droppings of last year's horses blaze up into golden stones. I lean back as the evening darkens and comes on. A chicken hawk floats over, looking for home. Uh, I have wasted uh, my uh, life. Killer. <laughs> so, 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 Marjorie, to your point, you know, here's some great imagery as well. But sometimes, what I also tell students, it's not only just show, don't, not just show, don't tell. But sometimes it's show and tell. If you if you show a lot, there's always sometimes a very important telling line. So that last line, we could argue all three of us. I think it wouldn't quite be the same poem, right? It'd be okay. He's lying in a hammock, blah blah blah, yada yada. <laughs> but that last line, which is a telling line, right? There's no imagery in there, right? Well, okay. I have wasted I'm my dying life to know about James. Right. I mean, he wrote this pretty good poem here, an excellent poem. So, why is he, do we know why he thinks he wasted his life? Well, he's always. Um, I think, uh, and I think, I think you're starting to see my taste uh, when you compare James Wright a little bit to Ada Limon in terms of that that sort of uh, that sort of darkness yet life affirming um, uh, moments in life. Um, he's yes. a much older poet. I mean, he passed away in 1980 uh, from Ohio, so he writes a lot about the marginalized, you know, the Midwest and and these uh, these sort of these 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 uh, the, the 
the people and the landscapes and of which he is part of um, and seeing both the beauty and the darkness um, is what he's known for. And so here, that's what I love about the last line, right? Has he wasted his life because he hasn't sat in a hammock long enough? Or is this one of those moments where you feel like I'm being a lazy <laughs> SOP, right? And I've wasted my, I got to get to work because I've done nothing and I'm, you know, 42 or whatnot. And I love how it's both, right? There's an ambiguity there. There's, there's a, there's a beauty to this and a, and a sort of maybe perhaps a sadness that I haven't achieved everything I've wanted achieved. And I think it works both ways, but, but yeah, he writes, so there's a very, uh, uh, I think I've read a couple of poems of him, maybe perhaps in the past, um, uh, that sort of always, f- always sort of navigate that fine line between and it between sort of darkness and and again life something life affirming or revealing right um as you see some of those images aren't really all that i mean they're very they're 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 images but they're not like they're not like pastoral sort of oh how cute you know the farm you know the droppings the chickens, of last you know? year's horses yeah. blaze up into I golden stones. i would have picked that detail <laughs> yeah the chicken hawk floating over you know looking for home the ravine behind the empty house, the cowbells following them. To the, so there's a certain, you know, there's a certain kind of a, a really keen eye there and very, very particularly cre- curated images, right? And that's another thing about show, don't tell that we always that I always try to tell my students too, is like, it's not what you show. I I mean, it's not just showing for the sake of showing, but how poets pick out precise imagery that echo the meaning in the poem, right? So so to die, like you were saying, to die a sapphire in the sand, that's something that I really, that image is, it's not just an image, but something also packed with meaning in the poem because it's curated. It's meant to be there. You know, it's meant to, to have that sort of melancholy beauty and sadness at the same time, this idea of, uh, of letting, of sort of admiring and being in awe of nature, but also knowing that you're mortal, you're a mortal being that, that it can't even stand up against the sea. Right. So yeah, that I, I'm glad we hit upon these things because these are all very, all these poems of course are very imagistic and, um, and um and and use that as part of their strength right i also wanted to say um some days the sea uh just for us uh perhaps english uh grade school students out there so i don't know if you noticed how many s sounds there were in some days of the sea <laughs> F? I do now. S, 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 okay. S. Oh, I do now. Even the title, right? Some days the sea. The sea is never the same twice. The waves open their lines, mouths, hungry for the shore. I feel the earth helpless. Some days are for me edges. Yes. <laughs> so that's kind of a... Uh, it's 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 a, it's part of obviously echoing. Uh, now I'm going to forget my own term because God poets love making up terms for everything. But it's kind of like an onomatopoeia, right? Like the snake yeah. slithers in the grass, so they get that swoosh sound of the ocean. Is another thing that, and I actually almost did it uh, just instinctually. By the time I finished reading this, I was like, oh my god. There's so many S sounds in here, um, but yeah. I, but the, but you know, I remember reading that, that in in college. We're out of time now, but with French, that they were all had a lot of L's and R's. They would talk about some of these French poets. Richard, that was wonderful as always. As Thank always. you very Thank much, you. Richard. <laughs> That's Richard Blanco who joins us regularly to lead Village Voice, where we discuss poetry and how it can help us to better understand our lives and our times, and in this case, the summertime. He's the fifth, the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history. His new book, How to Love a Country, deals with various sociopolitical issues that shadow America. 
Coming up, the new Boston School Superintendent spoke to me and Jim yesterday. We talked to her about exam school entrances. We're going to talk to our education man, Paul Revel, about that and other things up next. Uh, you're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie, you're going to hear this in Studio 3 to go over the latest education headlines. This is Paul Revel. Paul would be a professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, where he also runs the Education Redesign Lab. He's got a new book out, which we still haven't talked about. What is the problem? What are we waiting for? Uh, I think it's coming up. <laughs> oh, it I think okay. it's coming up. He's got a new book out, co-author with Elaine Weiss, uh, entitled Broader, Bolder, Better, How Schools and Communities Help Students Overcome the Disadvantages of Poverty. Hello, Paul. Hello, Jim and Marjorie. Hello, Paul Revel. Happy summertime. Happy summertime to you, too. I'm having a wonderful summer, I must say. It's really great. Love it hot. Boston School Superintendent Brenda Casillas was with us uh, yesterday, and we asked her about one of the controversial issues facing uh, the school system in Boston is changing the entrance exams for those exam schools in Boston. Here's what she had to say. You know, we could talk talk this over and see are there other options in terms of the exam. I wouldn't, you know, I'm not proposing getting rid of any type of exam or anything like that. Um, it's it's just that there might be something that's, you know, just quite frankly will save us some money. But you talked about how it cost 140 bucks, I think it was, per mm-hmm. exam. And um, uh, I guess this is, even mentioning this is, caused quite a stir. What, what's what's going on? Well, you know, there was a, there was a report about six months ago that, um, uh, I think done by some colleagues at Harvard, that uh, showed that this exam actually had a disproportionate and unfair effect on, on kids who weren't being prepared with the curriculum that the test was measuring, that it was more aligned with private school curriculum because it's a private school entrance exam than it was with what's going on in the public schools. So there has been a call for some time to do something about the exam. So, I, I mean, I think it's a, a welcome um, uh, kind of initiative on part of the superintendent to say she's open. I, I take this as a pretty cautious remark. She didn't say we're going to eliminate an exam. She didn't say we're even going to replace this, but she said we should look at it. I think cost is a factor, but frankly, I don't think that's the most important factor. I think that the issue of fairness uh, is is a critical factor, and there are elements in this that appear to be unfair relative to giving everybody equitable access to the exam schools. So I'm glad she wants to do something. About I, it. I just want to comment. It was the lead Globe story. Her comments uh, today, and she was pretty much savaged by uh, the executive or director of lawyers for uh, civil rights. And I, I surely am, I'm going to get in the middle of this. The criticism that was voiced by Yvonne Espinoza Madrigal, superintendent's focus on test costs instead of real issues such as access and preparation completely misses the mark. Uh, I mean, obviously, we were here for this discussion. I don't. Right. She doesn't need – but she didn't speak to the Globe. She doesn't need any defense from me. I don't – while she did not affirmatively say the reason for changing the test might be issues of access and preparation, that's the context for, in which we asked the question – it, she did not say it, meaning uh, right. Meaning, I, I think it's fine to say, uh, it, because those are more important, I would agree, than the 140 bucks that she should have said it. But it wasn't the sole focus of our interview. And so, again, the absence of it should not indicate she doesn't care about it. Obviously, from there, she's got to speak for herself. No, I, I, but it isn't like we had like a 12-minute conversation. No, I agree this. with you. I, I mean, I, this is a new superintendent putting her toe in the water. 
And I think that she's uh, indicating uh, she has an open mind about changing the exam. And a lot of people have said we should do that for reasons of access and equity. And uh, so I take this to mean that she's going to move in that direction and she's testing the waters. I think I asked you this probably, but have you met her? Oh, yeah. And what do you think of her? I, I think she's, uh, she's got a terrific energy. I think she's got great interpersonal skills. I think she's politically savvy and aware. I think she's really committed to the job. I mean, I was interested to see that provision in her contract that allowed for her to move around different neighborhoods. In I the know. City. You I tell mean, people I, about that. Go from I, apartment I to apartment to apartment. That, yeah, she's yeah now I've, never, this... I've never heard of a superintendent doing that. Yeah, they're going to give her a uh, U-Haul so she can... Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, so she can move to different neighborhoods. It's amazing. So, I think that's great. Yeah, and I, there are a lot of other positive signs. I mean, the way she put together a team at the beginning, quite inclusive, quite a large team. Now she'll have to sort out how many reports she can have, but she's, uh, you know, she's done things like get more Latinos and Latinas in, in, in top-level leadership positions. Yeah, she's not that. made the mistake that her predecessor made, which is bringing in a whole fleet of people from elsewhere who don't know the environment. She actually relied on a lot of the internal talent within the system, and I think she gets kudos for that. At the same, same time, she brought in one or two people of her own uh, so I'm. Uh, I think the signs are very auspicious, very positive. I have a very positive impression of her. Well, you know, we remarked, remarked about this yesterday when uh, uh, the previous superintendent Tommy Chang came in to do an interview with us. He was accompanied by Mayor Walsh. It was almost like he got his big brother there to monitor what he, what he was saying. I don't know if that was intended or that was just an accident, but in any case, she she's. Um, Obviously, uh, she, she came in all by herself yesterday. With I think she had an aide or two with her, but she wasn't with the mayor. And um, her po- political skills, I think, as you say, are quite impressive. Can I, I say she- one more thing about this? Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I think the Globe played this like it did, what we haven't mentioned is there's a history here. You may have said it in passing. Tommy Chang broached the possibility had to backtrack, Laura Perrill, the interim person, same sort of thing. There's a lot of op- – well, there are a lot of people who believe the exam does have to be changed so that there's greater diversity within the exam schools. There are a lot of people who don't want to see dramatic change, and there was a lot of blowback to the point where Chang and Perrill didn't pursue it. That's correct, yes? Yes, it is, although that wasn't just about the test. Frankly, I think the Globe overplayed the story. I don't think it was that big a deal that she indicated she'd be open to thinking about it. I think – uh, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, way back the school department indicated when the report first came out that they'd have a look at it. She was basically saying, "I'll have a look at it." But yes, I mean, there's a lot of um, certainly there's a lot of inertia, there's a lot of momentum, there are a lot of constituencies to support the status quo in terms of the distribution of seats in exam schools and anything anybody does to change that. As they found out recently in New York, the new superintendent in New York came in. Uh, and with the full support of the mayor, determined to change the way in which they apportion seats in the city of New York uh, to the exam schools there, and they they um, failed. Can yeah. I say one more thing about the exam school thing? Beyond the testing thing, there was obviously the racial incidents. What two years was it? Two That's years right. Ago? Yeah. Uh, uh, there is At a Boston real. Line. I know this is not a revel. You know, a, I'm saying this for those who aren't intimately involved. The racial divide, particularly among some of the parents, is pretty dramatic. We had a ton of white parents. Uh, contact us through email and through intermediaries suggested that we were giving too much play and unfair too much play to the uh, kids of color and their families who are complaining about racism in these schools. We invited both on radio and television any of those parents to come express their position and not one was willing willing to to do it publicly, which to me, frankly, doesn't 
give much credit to their arguments. But in any I, case, I do think the school system worked in the interim, and they've gotten a new headmaster, and by that, all yeah. reports, that's going well. I mean, it went think there, right? There, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Graduate. there needed to be changes in the culture there. I, I think things are moving along. But this larger question, which is much more sensitive, and we'll see, you know, the mayor is obviously going to have a, 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 a say on this as well, uh, giving serious reconsideration to how we apportion seats and to, you know, racial balance, demographic balance at the exam schools is something that deserves um, another look now, and it will take political courage to do that. So there was another uh, 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 James Vans, Vasna story in The Globe, this one about uh, Brookline kindergartens with people complaining that the little five-year-olds were sitting at their little desks like little office workers, and one mother was quoted as saying her, her kid felt it was like a pressure, cusher, a pressure cooker environment. Excuse me. She said it totally knocked her self-esteem down. She came home and said she hates school, hates reading. She didn't want to go to school. She was calling herself stupid. If I quizzed her on things, she would shut down. I mean, uh, my kids went to the Brookline schools, but it was 20 years ago when they were in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, is this a problem? Well, I think in some places, uh, you know, it's a a rising concern. We've put a lot of emphasis in the K-12 system on accountability, on on uh, learning to read by third grade, which research has shown is a really important predictor of future academic success. So that's a legitimate thing for educators to focus on. We want everybody to learn by grade three, learn to read by grade three. And obviously that, um, uh, you know, there, there's, uh, there are things that can be done to, in terms of uh, literacy, familiarity, and so forth in preschool. And some of the kindergartens have been pushing harder on reading in response to this. I mean, Massachusetts still has a significant delta of young people who are not proficient at reading by grade three. And that score has plateaued over a number of years here. So there is pressure on the school systems to do more cultivating literacy. At the same time, you know, for example, I was listening to uh, a show, I think, on on, on uh, your network here Good. a little while ago <laughs> about uh, reading in Sweden. It was an NPR show, and they were talking about how they don't even send the kids to school until they're seven, and there's no push among parents to encourage literacy familiarity before then. It, the idea is let them play, let them be open. It's not a rat race. You don't have to do this quickly. Kids can learn to read after they're seven years old, so on and so forth. So that culturally, there are different takes on how to do this. How are but, the results there? Uh, well, they do pretty well. They do pretty well in general. So, I mean, I... I well, I, I have heard that anecdotally, that a lot of people think, oh, let's, let's teach kids to read at three or four, and they'll get a big big, big step up, and then they all kind of catch up. You know, the kids that learn at right. six, or se- right. six or seven... I mean, the big the big problem is the kids who are not learning to read. And yeah. I, I don't think this – I mean, I, I don't think actually – I mean, if you look at the demographics and background of kids in Brookline, I'm not sure uh, – you know, the, the, it has to be a pressure cooker in order to get people to read by third grade. But what they have to do is start to differentiate between kids. When I was secretary of education, I'd go into kindergartens on the first day of school in September, and you'd see kids who were two or three years behind in reading readiness and kids who were two or three years ahead. And yet we gave them all the same treatment. And by giving them the same treatment, those who are ahead are going to continue to move ahead, and those who are behind in general tend to stay behind. So we've got to do more to differentiate, meet kids where they are, and give them what they need. We're talking to uh, Paul Revel, former secretary of education, now at Harvard. Uh, one of the thing, great things the Globe's done, I think starting two or three months ago, 
is they have a Providence Bureau, which I we both love Providence. Yes, we do. It's very nearby. Actually, we have a very nice audience there for this show, which makes us happy. But they essentially have a team of reporters who are covering they Providence, do. Yeah, which is great. Yeah, they really up the coverage. It's and, great. and there's a story that is frightening. The condition of yeah. Providence schools had a review team in tears. It's from late uh, June, Dan McGowan. Here's the opening paragraph. Rhode Island Education Commissioner, I hope I pronounce this right, I'm sure I won't, Angelica Infante-Green has been on the job for less than two months, but she already has a startling response to a litmus test question about Providence schools. Would you send your children to any of them? No, not one, she said bluntly during an interview. I had no idea that the schools – and didn't you say the mayor there? Was it the mayor who said – Oh, yeah. What did he, the mayor he, say? He, sa- he said he'd send his kids to the, the elementary, elementary schools. But not but the middle schools. But all hell breaks loose in the middle school or words right. to that effect. Right. So and what's they were going talking on? about sorry. kids, rodents, traps, you know, those sticky things getting stuck to the kids' feet, ceilings collapsing, uh, fights, violence in the schools. And they're horrible, horrible – Test scores, it just sounds like a So what's going on? Well, I mean, it's it's very discouraging. Uh, and number one, I've never heard a commissioner of education in any state at any time making that kind of statement exactly. about a local school system, let alone a mayor saying, uh, you know, that he has no confidence in the secondary education that's happening in his city. And a lot of what you see going on here is, I think, uh, and we've done some work, in fairness, uh, our By All Means initiative does some work in Providence. We tend to work on the factors outside of school, not in the schools per se. Um, but uh, the the mayor, I think, is in, in effect throwing up his hands in frustration at his capacity with the powers that he has the rules in Providence are a little bit different than in other cities. For stifling, example, it says, stifling union contract. Just want to point that. Well, out. well, there is a union. There, there is a union contract issue there that is constraining. There are also other governance issues. Any contract above five thousand dollars that's let by the school department has to be approved by the city council. Oh my God, and that's the not city... the union's fault either, is it, Marjorie? No, it's not. I don't know. So, I haven't looked into it. So I, I'm trying <laughs> to get a balanced scorecard here. <laughs> Thank so you very uh, much. Uh, so there are all kinds of problems, and I think. The mayor is basically saying, you know, this uh, – I, I don't have the prerogatives within the authority that I have as mayor to solve this. And he's welcoming the involvement uh, and encouraging the state. Uh, the governor's taken an interest in it. And this new commissioner, who's a strong commissioner with good background, uh, is going to come in. Now, it's not clear that they have the legal authority or what legal authority, and that's what they're examining now, to move in and do something there. They took over Central Falls some while ago. Um, that has not been enormously successful in the long run, although Is that it was. the place where Duncan ended up? Didn't Duncan yeah, there was visit the those problem. schools? Yeah. Secretary Duncan, or right. Arnie Duncan, yeah. Yeah, and then they had some union issues yeah. with respect to uh, firing, you know, a whole bunch of teachers yeah. under the No Child Left Behind Act and whatnot. Uh, so I think it's uh, the devil's in the details as far as these takeovers go. We had yeah, good experience. Yeah, because Riley did really well in Lawrence, Lawrence yeah, right? Riley did but well in other Lawrence. Places, not he had so good much. tools that, incidentally, through the Achievement Gap Act of 2010, which was passed during our time, um, those tools enabled him to have the authority and power uh, to do a variety of things up there. Many of the tools he had and, and strong authority he had, he didn't use, but it was by virtue of not using it 
that he built credibility and trusting relationships, for example, with the union up there that enabled him to get some good things done. So well, let's make sure we give no credit to the union and Lawrence for working with the uh, <laughs> the special master or whatever no, it was, no, the receiver, because you know, yeah, I'm came, sure they had nothing to do with they, it. They came Marjorie. to the table. They came so to the table, Jim. When you say, what is it called, by all means? Or what's yes. the, the program? Yeah. Uh, when you say not inside the schools, but you're working on the periphery or whatever expression you used a minute ago, what does that mean? What do you do? Well, I mean, this we'll, we'll talk about when we talk about my book one day, is, you know, we're dealing with those factors outside of school in terms of supports and opportunities that young people have. Like we're de- dealing with the disadvantages of poverty. So like we're what? Well, uh, access to early childhood education, okay. access to after-school learning, access to summer learning. So we work with the Providence Public Schools on, and we, we've created a children's cabinet there in collaboration with a lot of Providence people. And they've, they've emphasized, um, uh, you know, increasing access to high-quality summer learning for people, for, for students. They've also a- emphasized social and emotional learning. So they, the mayor was able to, through a different contract negotiation with the firefighters, to save some money. And he put some of that money into social and emotional counselors at the, uh, at the middle school level. So we're about trying to provide the supports and opportunities that make it possible for kids to show up at school in the first place and be ready to learn when they get there. You know, uh, I'm going to sound like Marjorie, and I feel it. I'm not just saying it. But can you imagine you're a parent of a kid who's in the Providence Public Schools, and you hear, and I admire the candor, by the way, you hear the Rhode Island Education Commissioner say she, under no circumstance would she send her school kids to the schools that you are required because you can't afford a private school education for your kid to send your kid to. I mean, how do you feel? I mean, it's just... Well, and, she, and and no matter what best intentions of the mayor, and I assume that, and that there are, by the way, and, and maybe state involvement, it's not going to get fixed while your kid is still there, realistically. And by the way, this is a big problem all across the United States of America. Sure. I mean, it's so clear that, it, that public schools are failing in, in towns unless they get a lot of money. I mean, it's everywhere. No, and it's... Well, and it's also how they use the money. and and. Uh, you know, so how I'd feel, I'd feel trapped. I'd feel stranded. If I was a parent and didn't have the wherewithal to move out of Providence, I'm stuck, which is where the whole school choice movement came from, is to say, you know, um, those of us who have the um, uh, the sufficient degree of affluence to move from one community to another have school choice whenever we want it. But if you're stuck in the inner city and you're low income and you're in a school system like this and you get this verdict from the people who at some level are responsible for it being a better school system and they say, gee, we've, we've failed. The mayor says, you know, I, I basically can't do anything else about it. The new commissioner says, you know, we're going to have to take it over. It'll be some years. This is a horrifying prospect for your children. So speaking of uh, people of means, uh, people of means paid the former fencing coach at Harvard a little less than twice what his house was listed as being worth. I think it was worth somewhere in the 500000 range. They paid him somewhere in the 900000 range. The father was a fencing community father. The kid ended up going to Harvard and being on the fencing team the next year. When it came to light, thanks to – was it some Google search that a Globe reporter or somebody locally did, if I remember, about the value of the house because they were surprised about the, the price that it sold for? The argument was there was nothing wrong was done. Obviously, the Harvard, Harvard hierarchy where you work – decided that there was something wrong with this, and the fencing coach was canned, correct? That's right. I mean, it appeared on the surface, and apparently the investigation validated this, that it was a blatant violation of the conflict of interest law. Now, the, the claim by the the uh, the uh, 
the man that was suspended was or, or fired was that uh, uh, this wasn't a, a conflict of interest, uh, and the guy who bought the house says he was just being nice to somebody who not he liked. Not because he's sports fencing, not right. currying favor. Not or, currying favor yeah. for his son, who incidentally it doesn't appear to have needed much yeah. favor because he was a straight-A student. He had perfect scores on the SAT. He was an accomplished fencer. His brother was already on the team. I mean, he seemed to have a clear pathway into Harvard. So why this was necessary or whether this was just a pure favor that one man was doing for another man, I don't know. But it, it, it sort of violates the premise. If you're in public life or in a public position like this, uh, to have this kind of appearance of a conflict of interest is in itself uh, an infraction and apparently worthy of, uh, of firing. Peter Brand is the name, was yeah. is the name of the former yeah. men's and women's fencing And meanwhile, also on the front page of The Globe today is a story about this apparent a genius economics professor at Harvard, Roland Fryer, who was given the MacArthur Genius Award, uh, you know, for uh, uh, at thirty, became the youngest African American to receive tenure at Harvard. He got all these other awards. Now he apparently is being thrown out two years, no pay for repeated instances of sexual harassment. Right. And if he does come back, he's got all these strictures on what he can do and cannot do. And has had some strictures for the past year. I mean, it's a superstar behaving badly. I mean, I, I don't know what else to say here. This uh, appears to be a mountain of evidence, at least from the public reports that I've read, that he uh, made some very bad choices and said some very indiscreet things to people and created a really poor atmosphere over there. But he was a superstar and had a lot to contribute in our field of uh, education as well as in economics. So it's a it's a tragedy for him uh, uh, for his teammates over there for the university. But, you know, it is a tragedy for him, obviously, and for the people that he... Well, ab- self-inflicted. Ab- uh, that's right, yeah. yeah. But I wonder, stories like this I find very encouraging because he was a superstar, and he's, I, I think... Encouraging, meaning that an institution like Harvard would be willing to take yeah, on someone. Yeah, because I think that, yeah. cert- maybe 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago... People would look the other way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. No, I, I think you're right. I mean, it is indicative uh, of, uh, you know, we're now in an atmosphere where people are noticing things like this. And just because you're a superstar and you have an inordinate amount of power in that sort of environment, you have prestige, you have deference, and it gives rise to people feeling like, well, I can get away with anything. I mean, you st- this, this attitude starts right at the top uh, nationally with our president who says, you know, if you're famous, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're trying to create an atmosphere, and thanks to the Me Too movement, where uh, that isn't actually a prerogative that you have if you have fame and prestige. Okay, I've been a big critic, uh, critic of the president and, and lately the Republican Party that's, that's so blindly supported them. But I'm, I'm always critical of Democrats and it has, again, to do with the uh, teachers' union. Uh, they didn't pass this amendment, but what they wanted to do when they were having the convention to decide which candidate – uh, was going to get their support. This is the NEA. This is the National mm-hmm. Educators Association. Yeah, they demanded that all candidates seeking the union's endorsement publicly state their opposition to all charter school expansion. Uh, they uh, later decided not to pass that amendment. But the, to me, part of the problem with education in the United States has been that Democrats have been in the pocket of the teachers' unions, which are very powerful, give them a ton of money. All the you Democrats, mean Democrats like Barack Obama, who supported charter schools and other yeah, Democrats and took, and in the took, pocket. And, well, that was a little different situation because I, I think the competition against him that year uh, was not exactly on. You know, uh, He's the uh, most powerful Democrat in the country. Yeah, he was, was the most powerful Democrat in the country. But I don't, I don't think the Democrats have done much at all, really. To reform well, what, education. what bothers me about it is the, uh, you know, this charter school issue has become kind of a litmus test, and it's. 
basically silenced candidates on the topic of education. It has now become treacherous for Democrats and Republicans to speak out about education because their own parties are so divided over some of these issues that uh, teachers have lost their voice in a lot of the education policy conversations that are happening nationally. But there's a simple, I mean, with all due respect to both of you, there's obviously a simple solution to this. Like Amy McGrath, you go to the NEA convention, say you're against charter schools, and as soon as you leave, you say you're for charter schools. Is that, I mean, what's the problem? Is that what Barack Obama did? No, but it's what Amy McGrath did about Kavanaugh down there in Kentucky. Okay. Paul, we really want to do this book at some point. Okay, well, we're We're going to get the book, Paul. Where did I get it? You're the author. I mean, get it together here, You say you have a book, Paul, but we're getting suspicious. I'm not not pushy enough, so I have to be more self-promotional. So by the end of the month, I think we're going to do it. Chelsea's working with us. Great. Wonderful. Paul Revo joins us regularly. He's a professor. Nice to see you, Paul. My pleasure. Because we're slow readers here at Gemini. (laughs) He's a professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, where he also runs the Education Redesign Lab. He's got a new book out, so he says, co-author with (laughs) Elaine Weiss, titled Broader, Bolder, Better, How Schools and Communities Help Students Overcome the Disadvantages of Poverty. Thank you very much, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Up next, we're getting a preview of the Boston Landmarks Orchestra's summer season. That's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. Next Wednesday, it's July 17th, the Boston Landmarks Orchestra launches a new season with a symphonic space odyssey, 50th anniversary of the moon landing. They're collaborating with the Museum of Science's Charles Hayden Planetarium, which I love, which is providing video to accompany the music. Here with us in Studio 3 to review this and their other upcoming performances, all of which will be at the Hat Shell, are Christopher Wilkins and Joe Francis Meyer. Chris is the music director of the Boston Landmarks Orchestra. Joe Francis Meyer is the executive director. It's great to see you both again. Thanks for being here. Thank Thank you. you. Well, we've had you on before and we know about you guys, uh, but uh, let's start with Joe. Tell us... What, what the orchestra is. What's the deal? Oh, my goodness. The orchestra, Boston Landmarks Orchestra, was founded in 2001 by the late Charles Ansbacher, and he was determined to bring free orchestral music to everyone in Boston. The name comes from the fact that Charles had the orchestra play at various landmark locations, so hence the name. We, they were peripatetic in those days. But since 2007, Boston Landmarks Orchestra has made its performance home at the beautiful Hat Shell on the banks of the Charles River. And we have thousands of people there every week. We are celebrating the 90th anniversary of Arthur Fiedler's tradition, started in 1929, and we hope to have free orchestral concerts for everybody in Boston for a long time to come. You know, you said it twice. I want to say it a third time because it matters a lot to us. Free is free. a huge yes. and important. Quality matters. <laughs> entertainment matters. Yes. But free is a is a huge deal. One of the things I love about what you guys do beyond the quality of the music itself, Chris, is it is so integrated into this community with both organizations and individuals in so many ways. Other than the Science Museum, talk about some of the other groups with whom you guys are doing work this season. Well, it's multi-layered. Every week is multi-layered, and we work with musical organizations like the Back Bay Chorale, Coro Allegro, Boston's Gay Chorus. Here, uh, we work with non-musical organizations like the Aquarium or the Museum of Science, uh, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in the past, and, and so forth. And then we work with a lot of camps and a lot of school groups. And the whole purpose is about 
including as many Bostonians as possible in the experience. What does that mean? How are they integrated well, into the experience? Well, what, what we do, which we've sort of come to over time, is that we create residences. We, we create opportunities, particularly for children, but not only for children, to create work that they can bring on stage with us. So, for example, we work with Camp Harborview, which is... Which is this brilliant thing, by the way, for those who know, the Tom Menino and Jack Connors and other... Was John Fish involved in this? I don't, I don't know. know. Yeah. Yeah. Self-construction. Self-construction. Yeah. Uh, years and years yes. ago. Yes. And you know, when Tom Menino, t- just to interrupt you, when took me out there for the first time years and years and years ago, we spoke to a ton of kids who had said this is the first time they had seen the water yeah. in Boston, even though they only yes. lived... A mile and they were away, learning to swim. It was um, it was great. And was, so, what do you do with that's them? right? Well, and there are six or seven hundred kids there in July, and another six or seven hundred in August, and we interact with both sessions. But what we do is work to create something that they can participate in. So this year, it's drumming, it's movement, and then we also have a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts to incorporate the camp experience into a, a light show or projection mapping kind of thing. So there they are. You said they've never seen the water. They've probably never heard an orchestra. They've certainly never performed on a stage like the Hat Shell before. And we create an opportunity for them to do that. So that, that's one example of the kind of thing that we do. We have a choir that we call the One City Choir. And the goal is to have all 23 neighborhoods of Boston represented in that choir. We have people who are experienced singers or teachers and other people who have never sung on stage before. And the what's kind of distinctive, I think, about the Boston Landmarks Orchestra is this idea that we don't want to just represent a slice of the community. Our goal is ambitious, and we don't fully achieve it, but is to include potentially all Bostonians in the experience. Including dog Bostonians. Dog is that Bostonians. not correct? Yeah. We advertise that, Jim. Okay, and I that's just a want to be feature clear of our yeah. program. But that's a big deal. I mean, you can come out with your blanket and your picnic and your cooler yeah. and your dog, your dog and hang out for the whole evening and for free. We set up free. You know, the Maestro Zone where children come up and they I conduct during the concert and they can look at a score and get a conducting <laughs> lesson. So it's, it's intended to be every aspect of it participatory, interactive. Fun. So, Joe Francis, tell us about a performance or two that you're most excited about coming up. Oh, my gosh. I'm very excited about opening night because we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, of course, and we'll have video from the Hayden Planetarium. And we're also doing a really large work, also struck Zarathustra. Uh, it calls for a huge orchestra, so we'll have more musicians on the stage than we usually do. And I'm going to let out a little secret about that night, uh, something that I really wanted to have as maybe an encore or a special ending to the night was some remembrance of the great Frank Sinatra tune, Fly Me to the Moon. Oh, So we don't have a Frank recording, but uh, Chris has been in touch with an amazing uh, crooner. He's a pianist, a singer, and he used to perform at the Rainbow Room in New York for years. And he's going to do a medley at the end of the concert, which will include Fly Me to the Moon. Do you remember that (laughs) Fly Me to the Moon was the first music played on the surface of yes. the moon. That no, I Buzz don't remember that. down the ladder of the yeah. lunar module, yep. and he had a, a cassette, I don't know, Walkman in those days or whatever it was, and he pushed the button, and oh, Sinatra yeah. Yeah. and oh, the my Count Basie band. I Wait, is Chris, does that, that mean you actually believe we landed on the moon? <laughs> You're not <laughs> one of those, some, are you? Some, some people have that, that belief, and we're really going with sad. it on this particular night. There's a great audio recording in the documentary about Quincy Jones where Quincy and Frank are on the phone with each other, and they're going, hey, man, did you know that Neil Armstrong played this? Oh, that's great. It's unbelievable. That is great. So that's going to top off the evening. I'm really excited who about con- that. Who, what's the 
typical audience mix? I mean, who's at these things? It depends uh, to some degree on what we program and who's on the stage. Our, our goal, again, is to make it very diverse. So <clears throat> at the end of the summer, we have a whole Haitian project that we're doing, and we're hoping for a lot of the Haitian community of Boston, which is large, to come and show up and uh, support their team. Uh, what does a Haitian project mean? What are you doing that Well, night? we're doing, again, several things. We're doing music and dance, and we're doing a side-by-side with the young kids at Conservatory Lab Charter School, and we're working with an organization called Castle of Our Skins. Are you familiar with this? No. I'm not, no. Okay. Uh, Ash Gordon, Ashley Gordon, uh, has recently formed an organization to promote the music and performers of African-American descent in the Boston area, and they're doing awesome work, doing a lot of commissioned work, but also uh, did a theater project this year around the spirituals, around Roland Hayes, who has Boston connections, had Boston connections. So um, th- we're doing something similar with the Haitian community, uh, sort of, again, multi-layered. What do you do if it rains? Ah. Oh, my goodness. It doesn't. Uh, first, it, <laughs> it, it can't. First of all, everybody in my organization knows that I don't sleep very much on Tuesday nights yeah. because I'm so worried about Wednesday. But uh, one of the things, we're very fortunate that the Department of Conservation and Recreation, the Massachusetts DCR, they have reserved most Thursday nights for us so that if it rains on Wednesday, we can perform at the Hatchell on Thursday, which is great. The other thing we've done for the last several years is we work really hard to find a rain location in the event that it rains both. Wednesday and Thursday, I don't want to cancel the show. We invest a lot in these shows, and so the show will go on. That's Just great. check our website, and you can find out. And Christopher, are the musicians... Which is landmarksorchestra.org. Is that Thank not you. correct? Yes, you got it. Are the musicians in your orchestra, I mean, is there a much, a much movement among orchestras around mm-hmm. Boston? So mm-hmm. some of these musicians may play in other orchestras. A lot of them are playing in the Boston Pops, or they're playing in the Lyric Opera, yeah, or Boston Ballet Orchestra, Boston Modern Orchestra Project, Benjamin Zanders, Boston Philharmonic. Um, they they do move around a lot, and they play in Rhode Island, and they play in Portland, and so forth. And what's going on with WCRB? They're right across the hall from us right here. So you know, far, yeah. I mean, we, you, you subjected that? us to classical music in the waiting room. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes. I know that. Yes. <laughs> but we use the Fraser Studio here to rehearse But don't you have some, some, of our, some of our not Laura Carlo? Don't they do yes. that? Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Oh, right. there, uh, we have one of the on-air hosts from WCRB as one of our co-MCs every right. week. So we have Kathy Fuller coming on opening oh, night. excellent. Uh, Laura Carlo will be with us on July 31st for Deep River. And, oh my goodness, uh, we've had Chris Voss many times. I'm trying to, I can't remember who's coming on our last night, dance night. But we love having WCRB hosts. And they're our media partner and we're just, they're very good to us. When you also, say, by the way, last night, just so people know, you're, uh, July 17th is the premiere performance, mm-hmm. a week right? from yesterday. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then it runs through mid-August as well. August right? 21st. August yep. 21st. That's our big yeah. dance night. And you okay. mentioned 21st. Deep River, which is on July 31st, but that's also going to have, uh, the, the program here says, uh, Showboat is going to yes. be. Excerpts um, from Showboat, yes. which has a storied uh, history, 92 years of glory. Uh, and the most revived show on Broadway, by the way, nine yes. nine Broadway revivals, New York revivals, really? um, but also very controversial. Yeah, what's, what's, the, what's the controversy? <clears throat> race, yes, it's race. race. But it was it was deliberately uh, written in a way to bring up those issues. So when we talk about issues today about casting and whites playing in in black roles, or we talk about uh, cultural appropriation and those kinds of things, that not only was present already in 1927 when it opened, the plot line of 
showboat revolves around those questions. So it was very proactive around the issue of race. But over the years, of course, these, whole, these questions have, have changed in, the, in, our, in our minds. So we're very engaged in discussing the way that race is portrayed in the history of orchestral music and Neat. on Broadway in, in our production. That's the voice of Christopher Wilkins. He's the music director of the Boston Landmarks Orchestra. Here with him is Joe Francis Myers, the executive director. You know, as I'm looking at you, I forgot when we met you, weren't you some big corporate lawyer oh, yeah. or something? <laughs> yes, and had, you were. And you had this epiphany. What happened to you? Many years ago, and I was practicing law. No, and then and what I happened? found her heart. I right? found is my that, heart. Is that what really happened? I ended yeah. up at the Boston Symphony Orchestra, then Rockport Music, and now Boston Landmarks Orchestra. And I still love the law, but I am passionate about but, music. But wait a second. But I love that, by the way. As I'm sure I told you when you told us for the first time, was there a, was there a, a moment or was it an evolutionary thing I where think you decided, it was a, I really want to do what I, I want to do? I think it was do. evolutionary, Jim. Uh, you know, when you work in a big downtown law firm, that's a far cry from law school issues and, and zealous advocacy and policy issues. And I realized that on a day-to-day basis, that was not where my heart was. And in 1999, a position opened up at the Boston Symphony Orchestra, wow. and I went for it, and I've never looked back. And by the way, Chris Wilkins ran an auto plant in Michigan years ago. <laughs> I, was it, it was 1999, I yeah, think you were doing it was that? before the catalytic converters. Exactly. So I, I don't that's know a, what to do these days. That's you know, a, tell us what the, the green concert's going to be. That's not till August yeah. 14th, but We've this sounds a, very an environmentally themed yes. concert every year. Uh, this one is, is uh, you know, we deal with some heavy issues as, yep. as well as fun stuff, and sometimes they're both. I think this one actually is both, but it's really on the subject of climate change, and it's in partnership with the New England Aquarium. We're going to show some amazing uh, photographs in sequence created by David Arnold. Are you familiar with yeah. David Arnold? Yeah. We used see to write Globe for the Globe. For years? Yes, yeah. exactly. Always, right. He wrote about environmental stuff for years. Yeah. He's a great photographer. Great photographer and a courageous man. And, and, and so one of he, our trustees. He oh. took, for example, <laughs> yes. uh, pictures that Brad Washburn took in the 30s, early 40s of glaciers and oh. then took those same shots today. So you can see the change over time. He has a website called doubleexposure.net, and he's put together a show for us called Then and Now, Above and Below. So he's done this with glaciers and then also with coral reefs and set it to the Barbara Daggio for strings, which is just unfair. I mean, that just, you know, it's just so... Uh, Heartbreaking. It just hits Beautiful. you so hard. And then we're doing Von Williams' Symphony Antarctica with an entire... 33-minute film put together by Natural History New Zealand, which includes all kinds of shots of, of glaciers and marine life, both above and below the ice, but also historic footage. And that's going to be very, very powerful. And these are all Wednesdays. I, I yeah. know that's pretty obvious and, and based rains, on the rain. possibly Thursday. It's not going to rain, but yeah. if it were to rain. Yeah. And, and the thing with the planetarium that's going to start is, it, next week, you're going to have all these big pictures. Yeah, uh, screens yeah. on either side of the stage. Yeah. yeah. And put so together is... their their amazing uh, videos that their animation team has put together and made expressly for us for that particular night. Well, congratulations! Thank you. Another really great exciting. lineup. What a great thing for free. Bring your blanket. Bring your cooler. Bring your dog. Get there down to the Esplanade. Thank you very <laughs> much for being here. You don't have a dog. Rent one. That's exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Both. Christopher Wilkins is the music director of the Boston Landmarks Orchestra. Joe Francis Myers, the executive director. Next Wednesday, the Boston Landmarks Orchestra launches a new season with a symphonic space odyssey 50th anniversary of the moon landing at the hatch shell so we're just talking about with the pictures on either side to learn more about this and all other upcoming performances go to landmarksorchestra.org 
Christopher Wilkins and Joe Francis Meyer. Thank you very, very much Good to see you too. for coming Pleasure in. To be with you. Thank you. Coming up, WGBH Bianca Vasquez Tones has been reporting on Latino parents and how they're underrepresented in the Boston public schools. She's next on Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie and Latino kids are the largest ethnic group in Boston public schools, but their parents' voices are rarely heard. According to Boston Public Schools data, they're underrepresented in the school councils. They don't speak before the school committee at a level approaching their presence in the district. And their relative silence is at odds with what they have at stake. Latino children have some of the worst outcomes in the district. Bianca Vasquez-Tonis is the managing editor and correspondent for K-12 Education for WGBH News. She's been working on a three-part series on this issue. It's called Missing at the Mic. You can hear more this afternoon on All Things Considered and read more of her reporting at WGBHnews.org. I usually see Bianca at Whole Foods Market, so it's a pleasure to see you <laughs> at work. I'm sorry. Okay. Let's after hours. Let's be clear. Okay. So, so Bianca, underneath the Missing at the Mic, which is the headline of your, of your story, it's Why Are Boston Latino Parents Underrepresented in School Decisions? So give us some of the highlights. Why are they underrepresented? Well, uh, parents would say that they feel unwelcome in schools. Um, they would say that oftentimes meetings are not translated even though there might be people there who have the ability to translate, um, they might say, or they also told me that there are people, there aren't people who look like them in these meetings. They've also told me that some, some of these meetings, the discussions revolve around fundraising, right? So they feel like that even, you know, middle class Latino parents have told me that they feel, um, you know, just unable to contribute. Huh. Right. Well, we think of it, it, Boston Public Schools, because of busing going way back to the mm-hmm. 70s, that it's been like a big black-white thing. And I you think, mentioned that in your piece. Yeah, you actually. do mention that. That is how people think about it, I and, think. And that, that um, even though the, the Latino population is growing, that somehow they become the also-rans? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. People, um, people certainly feel that way, especially when – and you can sort of – you know, one of the school committee members, who's also a professor – um, talked about how during the school committee decision around the superintendent, people t- talked about there's this discourse about who the community wanted, right? Who the community wanted to be the superintendent. The community community is supporting Caselius, um, superintendent, the new superintendent Brenda Caselius, and you know she asked, well, who is this community we're talking about? Because really, the people who spoke um, were a lot of the people who were normally there. Right. There are a lot of advocates who come to these meetings all the time. Um, The NAACP, which, you know, has Latino members who are who are strong in that group. But there was no one, um, you know, there weren't a lot of parents of any stripe, really, who were out front during. Well, there were some some parents, but there certainly weren't any Latino parents. Yeah, when I read, when I uh, playing off uh, what Marjorie just said about uh, and as you mentioned in your piece, uh, one of your pieces on this, that the conventional wisdom is they're black kids and they're white kids. Mm-hmm. I was remembering we were preparing for the mayoral debate that we did between Marty Walsh uh, uh, 
and Cheeto Jackson. Cheeto Jackson, and I'm trying to think what year it was. I guess it was two years ago. Uh, we read some statistics that were shocking to me. I'm sure they're not to you. That virtually 100% of the population growth of Boston over mm-hmm. the last two decades, and that's not a typo in my voice, mm-hmm. roughly 100%. Uh, is Latino, of a growth in the Latino population. So you wonder how this was allowed to fall through the cracks. And then we met Casilius for the first mm-hmm. time yesterday, the new superintendent, and we mentioned what we had read in the newspaper, or maybe some of your reporting, that she has gone out of her way in mm-hmm. an additional hirings of the second tier, I don't mean the pejorative mm-hmm. way, I mean the people right under her, to diversify those ranks dramatically, mm-hmm. including with a significant number of Latinos. Mm-hmm. That's being noticed, I mm-hmm. assume, yes? Oh, I think she got the memo, uh-huh. right? I mean, there were two, the two Latinas on the school committee, right? Both voted for the, the Latina candidate, the Cuban-American woman from Miami. Oh, I didn't know that. They both voted for her. And in the last superintendent choice, two Latinas on the, super, or sorry, on the school committee voted for the Latino candidate who didn't get selected, right? So there is an ongoing frustration among um, some Latino professionals, professionals, not all of them, of course, that um, they keep passing over Latinos for this job. Um, At the same time, um, and there's also frustration that they aren't choosing people with the exception of Tommy Chang, who have experience just with other languages, right? People ex- who have experience, who are English learners themselves, mm. you know, or might have experience teaching English learners. So that that exists. So what would be the signs? It, it, you lay out in excruciating detail and painful detail to a great degree <laughs> where the failings are mm. uh, uh, in terms of equitable representation. What are the two or three things that the Latino community with kids in the schools are looking for Caselius to do as a sign beyond what we just discussed to show that she does get it and does understand there needs to be a much more? And she talks a lot about inclusion and reaching mm-hmm. out and community stuff. It, what should she be doing? What do they want to see her do? Uh, a few things. They want to feel um, like they're treated as partners. In schools, which how would they feel? so how basic, would, right? How would they feel that? What would make them feel that? <laughs> well, in, in some ways, um, you know, just giving them information and ability to, like, act, right, <laughs> right? Yeah. on behalf of their kids. You know, you hear these stories about not having, not being told that their kid is on the verge of, say, losing privileges because they've been absent too much and things like that. And people just feel like they're not getting told things because they don't speak English or because they aren't, you know, they're just considered you know, as an afterthought. Um, Another thing is I think people want, I think what would go a long way are are meetings that are in Spanish first, right? I mean, it's surprising to me how few, um, you know, even meetings in spaces where most of the people speak Spanish, it's still English first. Are there translators at most meetings where parents have an opportunity, even if they don't or can't take it to be there? At the school committee meetings... Right. If we talk about the big Uh meetings, right, there is an opportunity, I think, in the first 30 minutes. And if you get there and you tell them I need a translator, they they'll have a translator for you. But interestingly, I think people don't know that. Right. So they bring their own person to translate for them often. How about about at a community meeting that's not at that level? um, It depends. It depends on the meeting. But, you know, I could hear a lot of people listening to you right now and thinking the Boston Public Schools have a million sure. problems. Sure. And if you come here and you don't speak the language, why can't you bring your brother-in-law or your sister-in-law or your kid or somebody to help you if you are very interested in knowing what's going on at the school community meeting? You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? 
why not take someone with you yeah. to the school committee meeting? Yeah, say I I don't I don't speak English. I'm afraid mm-hmm. there's not going to be a translator to translate there. For I don't want to be embarrassed. I'm going to find a family member that speaks English. Often it's your kid. Sure, um, people do that. Yeah, it, um, which is not ideal, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I can hear people thinking this. You know, there's a million issues in the Boston public schools, and should translators be at the top of the list? Well, you know, in some cases, there's a federal right to have a translator, right? I mean, under federal law parents are guaranteed the right to have a translator in, you know, educational meetings, right, about their kids' special education plans and things like that. And I've heard that the Boston public schools have become better at this, but I've heard that it also still happens that they don't have translators there. And that's a violation of of these these parents' civil rights. Yeah. We're talking to Bianca Vasquez-Tonas, who is the uh, managing editor and correspondent for K-12 Education for GBH News, and her feature... Uh, her series, Missing at the Mic, talking about all aspects of Latino representation in the Boston public schools. You know what else you talked about, which is quite scary, uh, <laughs> is people's fear of ICE hmm. and deportation. We're looking at ICE coming into households. We don't know where they're going to strike, mm-hmm. 10 cities around the country. Uh, how big of a deal is that? I think that's certainly operating, I, especially in terms of um, if people are worried about complaining, right? Yeah. You don't want to be that even stand if stand out. Yeah, you don't want to stand out, especially if you have um, even if you do have a green card, right? And you're applying for citizenship in this climate, people are afraid of complaining and being that crazy parent, right? Who is complaining in a meeting and being, you know, escorted out or <laughs> talking too long or. And what's the sense of what is going on? Because I know one of the other points you make is that uh, a lot of Latino kids are, are struggling in mm. the schools. Is this some of them may be born here that they're English mm-hmm. speakers to begin with, or maybe it's a, a language issue. But what is going on? What is the the theory about why so many of these kids are struggling? What's the theory? Oh, wow. That's a big... Yeah. <laughs> That's a big topic. Um, I think that... Well, what's interesting is if you look at... And you're talking about in Boston specifically. Yes. So if you look at where they're not struggling, um, it's in or where they're doing much better is in East Boston. Well, because it's a Spanish-speaking community? Well, there are a lot of Spanish-speaking communities yeah. in Boston. <laughs> it's not just East Boston, yeah. right? So there's something going on in East Boston. And there are two things that um, you know you might point to, is that there is this respect for parents in a lot of these schools. Three of the, of the family-friendly schools that I wrote about are in East Boston. So parents are treated well. Right. You're welcome in this school. We're going to attempt to try to speak Spanish with you. We're going to try to have translators for you. We're going to give you information you can use to help your your kids succeed. Also, I talked to I've talked to principals who've said that they are deliberately not dumbing down the curriculum for English language learners. What happens a lot um, in schools is that kids um, get, you know, lesser, lesser curriculum. The expectations are lowered for those kids. And um, apparently they're lowered in all the high schools for everybody except well, for the exam schools, which is pretty bad. Yeah. So um, what do you think is going to happen out of this? You mean from my, yeah. uh, my reporting? I'm sure people are reading this and taking it to heart. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that, like I said, I think that Superintendent Brenda Caselius is quite savvy. And she's already heard these complaints even before my story. Right. So and she's hiring people. She's promoting people. She's doing interviews with Telemundo, 
which is um, a nice overshirt. She's going to churches. Um, but like she said during her interviews, you can't do everything. Right. Right. So she's talked a lot about creating, you know, like a social safety net, basically, for the schools to have a responsibility to take on providing lots of, um, you know, wraparound services for parents. Outside the borders of the yep. schools. She yeah. talked a lot about yeah. that, which is very interesting. And she just talked about parent engagement. But I, I guess I wonder, you know, can she do all of the things that she wants to do? Um, you know, and improve the curriculum and, you know, improve rigor, do all of those things. Well, she's been there 10 days, so we shall see. Yeah, we'll give her another 100 days. <laughs> Congratulations <laughs> on the reporting. Yeah, it's an immense amount of work. Time. Thank Thanks you very so much. much, Bianca. Bianca Vasquez Tonis is the managing editor and correspondent for K through 12 education here at WGBH. She's been working on a three part series which looks at how Latino parents are underrepresented when it comes to decision making in the Boston Public Schools called. Missing at the Mic. You can hear more this afternoon on All Things Considered and read more of her reporting at WGBHnews.org. Thank you very much, Bianca, for coming in. Thanks for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow at the library, Emily Rooney, soccer player, fresh off the Women's World Cup, Samantha Muse, Sue O'Connell, and our Friday news quiz. What's on TV, Jim? Samantha Muse, too. Uh, Suffolk County DA Rachel Rollins took some hits again in the Boston Globe the other day. Um, she will join me to respond to those. Bob DeSalvio, who is the president of Encore Boston, which opened a few weeks ago, the new casino in Everett. He'll be there. Adam Riley caught up with a, a New Hampshire family that's getting the $1,000 a month from presidential candidate Yang. That's the centerpiece of his campaign. So all that's tonight at 7 o'clock in Greater Boston. I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Bradley. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow and have a great day.